Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to do a writer's table. This is episode 32. We have some questions already queued up. And if you're in the audience, um, you can go ahead and add your own as we're doing this. And we'll try to get to it as we can. So, let's look at the first question. Okay. I heard Kira mention that she is not a fan of writing action scenes. And that she finds them difficult to write. This is true. Across the board. I'm not a fan. I hate to write them. I sometimes go out of my way to plot my way around not having one. Just to let you know. Are there any action scenes that you've read that you thought were well written and easy to visualize for the reader? What stories stand out for you? Can you recommend a specific author that you think consistently writes good action? Um, Jilly wrote a really excellent chapter-long action scene for Demons. Was mm-hmm. it Demons? The only chapter-long actors you've ever okay. written, so yes. Um, that it was really easy to visualize and um, I enjoyed reading it. Um, but when it came to like, when it, when it comes to action scenes and, and other writers, I, I don't know why I have this mental block. I can't think of a single one. Um, I've, I mean, for me, I can't think of a writer that is consistently good that I go, it's, I, I, yeah, I can visualize that. But um, one author that jumped into to mind uh, that's good. I will say in, okay, let me backtrack in the fantasy genre, which is probably the most palatable for most writers. I will say, I think Terry Brooks is pretty good at this. Um, the demon chase scene in the Elfstones of Shannara was probably one of the most vividly written action scenes I've ever read in my life. Um, to the point that I was shaking by the end of reading it. And it's not often that I, something I'm reading on the page is affecting me that viscerally. I would actually say there's a lot of action scenes in the Elfstones of Shannara. And interestingly, and the thing is, I can't say that it's true for him across the board as a writer, because I don't think the Sword of Shannara, which was the first book of that arc, was as vividly drawn. Um, other people who maybe have read that series maybe also speak to that, but I do think that Elfstones of Shannara stands out in his work as some of his best written action scenes, and honestly, just very well written action scenes across the board. Um, I think in in the suspense to pushing into the horror genre, I do think Dean Koontz is pretty good with writing well-drawn action scenes that aren't bogged down in unnecessary detail, but he often writes, especially psychological thrillers, are very good for that, Uh, but that's not to everybody's taste. Um, J.D. Robb, the other half, the better half of Nora Roberts for me, because lately, I mean, when I was younger, I really really dug Nora Roberts, but her alter ego, J.D. Robb, um, the In Death series has some really good action scenes, and she doesn't get bogged down in the details, um, but she gives you enough that you're moving with the scene, which I really appreciate, but I never feel psychologically overwhelmed by what she's writing. Does that make sense? Yep. And she wrote a book as Nora Roberts that always stuck out at me. But like, I haven't read this book in probably 20 years it's called Sacred Sins um, that I still remember some of the murder scenes in that book, which murder scenes to me are action scenes. So the fact that I'm remembering these books, these scenes like 20 years later speaks to how evocatively they were written. Um, some people in the chat, a couple people in the chat have said that David Weber uh, writes good action scenes. Um I'm trying to think of anybody else that jumps into my mind. 
Because one of the things, there are some people that write scenes that I would say are, are good in the sense that I can visualize them well, not good in the sense that they're a little bit bogged down in detail. Um, like I didn't have a problem for the most part visualizing the stuff that was in The Martian, but I felt bogged down a little bit. And the Martian was scientific heavy though. Yeah, and it wasn't what I would really call action, although some scenes were ostensibly action scenes, but they just didn't really feel like it felt more like a, a lot of science exposition so uh, that's why it's it's kind of was it bogged down into the in the action some of Anne McCaffrey's books I felt like were very good for ev evocatively written action scenes not the dragon riders which I know is her her big um what was that series like the crystal crystal singer series or something like that um yeah, those were a little to me better for well written action. And part that partially that may be because it was science fiction, not fantasy. Often fantasy labors under more detail, and so that can bog down action scenes. Um, Lois McMaster Bujold is will give you a master class on writing action scenes, especially in The Warrior's Apprentice. If you only read one book in that entire arc, I would highly recommend The Warrior's Apprentice. Um, I'm trying to think of who, I, that, I think that's kind of my, that's who jumps to mind, jumps into my mind initially. Um, in, in fan fiction, there is a, there is a Hobbit story. And someone's gonna help me find this in just a minute. As soon as I get finished telling you all about it, someone's gonna pop up with a link. I'm confident. Um, Bilbo tells the company he found the One Ring. And they're all standing around in a circle looking at this and thinking, we're not going to Erebor, are we? <laughs> and they trot their asses to Mordor. And when they get there, they get kind of separated. And Bilbo ends up finding a flying ship. And this is one action-packed, wall-to-wall story that just dragged me it, it dragged me all the way to mordor guys and the flying ship and bilbo was having the time of his life with the flying ship and i mean it's great it's fantastic but i couldn't tell you the title if my life depended on it right now but someone's looking it up oh, for me i'm sure i know i know, I know what you, i know what you're talking about um that, it's called that... this wasn't part of the plan by mad fairy and i've honestly never read anything by mad fairy that i didn't enjoy um Speaking of fan fiction, in terms of good action scenes, uh, I brought this story up before. It's one of my favorite fan fiction stories. Is Airman Harris by Litgal. Now Litgal is really good for writing evocative scenes in general, but in terms of the action scenes I've read from her, I would say that this one stands out. There is a a demon fight towards the end of the story that is just so vividly drawn. It will kind of make you actually kind of wish you could puke on your shoes. Um, wow. And, you know that and the thing is it's very short and it actually is so impactful for because it's so short the fact that you can so visual clearly visualize and the descriptors she uses like you've got these like battle-hardened soldiers who are not used to this type of fighting who are finding themselves exhausted of this and just she throws in these emotional details with the action that amplify the action by like a factor of 10. it's these little details that she weaves in with with these with the action itself that amps up the action because you're like holy crap this is a special ops soldier who has been through 
literal wars, right? And is finding this very short battle with demons to be overwhelming and to be almost too much. And just these little emotional details that she puts in just rev the action up by um the McMaster Bujold wreck was uh the one for action is the Warrior's Apprentice. Now it is one of my favorites in the series in general. I would recommend the Verkosigan saga across the board. Um but for action, I do think that The Warrior's Apprentice is one of the better ones. Um, probably the best book in the series is, in terms of for humor and character development, is probably A Civil Campaign, which is way later in the series. But uh, the first the first book that introduces Miles, who's the main character in the story uh, line, is The Warrior's Apprentice. And Lady Holder linked Airman Harris. You can also find Airman Harris if you want it in a... Uh, sort of in a downloadable format on Twisting the Hellmouth. I think that's the only other place that it is because it's not one of the ones that um, she's brought over to AO3. Last time we discussed action scenes, somebody sent me an email and it was a really interesting one talking about their struggle with writing action scenes and how they made a connection that they thought might help me. For the record, it did not. But I really appreciated that they took this time to email me about their own struggle and um, what they did and how they solved it. And she thought that I might solve it the same way because we had something in common. Um, and that was the ability to write really good sex scenes. And she said she started basically writing her action scenes like they were sex scenes. And I was like, I see why that helped you. But most of the time when I'm writing an action scene, they're violent. And I don't want to make a connection between that kind of violence and sex. It was a weird, it was like my brain went offline completely. It was like, no. Um, and there is, I mean, a sex scene is a kind of action scene. Your characters are, most of the time, being very physical with one another, right? So it makes sense that you, would, you could consider that an action scene um, in a way. But uh, more than I can handle in that respect. And sometimes defining what an action scene is can be difficult. Like, is it a fight? Is it a car chase? Is it both? Is it a heist? Like the actual physical event of the heist? Is that an action scene? And you look at the way TV shows and movies are constructed um, around these particular scenes. I watched a really interesting clip on YouTube. There's a 911 clip of, of a show of an episode that I've not seen yet where Josh, the 911 operator is um directing all these moving parts in a storage facility. Um because there's a gunman in there loose. He's loose in the um and he's got first responders, he's got cops, he's got a victim and he's moving these people around um based on reports from the cops about where this gunman is um to keep everybody safe. And it has all these moving parts. And it's a really interesting scene. I think you should go look it up. Uh, I think I, when I watched it on YouTube, it was like, Josh sa Josh saves everybody, 911. Because um, he does. He literally does. <laughs> he saved everybody. <laughs> and <coughs> it, um, it speaks to a coordination level that I really enjoyed. Um, and so it was like a different perspective on the action because you were kind of seeing it from his point of view. He was an outsider to the action, but he was directing every bit of it. Bryce says that's season four, episode 11. Um, but you can also watch, like I said, just watch it on YouTube. Josh saves everybody, 911, and that should pop it up for you. Um, 
it's just a different way of looking at an action scene that I found really interesting. And for those of you who are keeping track, yes, I'm still stuck at the lawsuit. Don't judge me. I don't want to talk about it. But shows like um, procedurals like that do give you the ability to watch action scenes in a somewhat safe environment because you know on primetime TV they're not going to go as far as they could in say a movie that has a regular R rating or on Netflix when I had to bow out of the first episode of Daredevil because it was too violent. So I think a good an, an, another good writer in fandom that's consistent across their craft across the board is Tarlin. Um, as a Stargate writer, I'm not sure if they write in other fandoms. Um, I would say a lot of other fandoms. They yeah. do, yeah. But Tarlin yeah. is probably, pro honestly, my favorite Stargate writer. Um, right there was Lady Ra and um, Estefi. I'm trying to be like, Lady Ra is my one of my favorite writers for sure. But I'm just trying to, when, in terms of, I'm trying to think of who writes because, like, when I think of Tarlin, I'm not trying to think. I'm trying to think of action scenes. Like Lady Ra doesn't jump to my mind for action scenes either. Although I'm sure she's written them, it's just not what jumped to mind when I think of her. One of my um, favorite scenes Tarlin wrote um, was them arriving on the city and the city responding negatively to all of the gene carriers. And the city started throwing out these shields and separating out people who had the ancient gene from people who didn't. It was like, boom, boom, boom. And then it, the city dialed the gate. And sent everybody he didn't like, she didn't like, back to Earth. She yeeted them off the city. It's like, nope. <laughs> but, <clears throat> okay, so let, I, when I think about, actually, when I do think about action scenes, I was trying to think of, like, running my, through the list of um, Lady Ra's stories and which ones might have action scenes in them. Um What's so, that one? She she has she has small action scenes in a, in quite a few, but in terms of ones that have bigger action scenes, uh, the one that jumps out to me would be Scorpions. And anything she does, she does well. So when she writes an action scene, it's going to be done well. Um, what about the McAfee? Is that McAfee? McAfee? When we're talking talks to oh, animals. Oh, McC McCavity. Um, that has some action scenes in it. That especially the one where um, uh, where Hydra tries to get Tony. Yeah. Yeah, that that series is called Sentience by Tarlin. Um, it's 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 very amusing. Yeah, um, I forgot about McCavity. McCavity does have a few action scenes in it. Um, again, it's more small action scenes interspersed throughout. It's more of a, I think, a relationship and a, a character building story than um, than than action overall. But it does have some small action scenes. But Scorpions is more a lot more action oriented. But a lot of people but there's like if you have an issue with Scorpions, you might have like a visceral reaction to that story because there's more than a few. <laughs> it's called Scorpions for a reason. For a reason, yeah. But the, I was I would say that Lady Raw is a very consistent writer. Whatever very. she decides to write, she's going to write really well. So if you're moving into an action scene or a, 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 a I love you confession scene, whatever it's going to be, Lady Raw is going to bring it her A game to the table, and it's going to be great. Oh, action! I forget about the story because it freaks me out. Um, and the story has several action scenes, and they're all almost too evocative. And this is one of her hardest stories for me to read, and that is Sensing Evil. And um, is that the one with? NCIS? Yes, the NCIS Stony, where story get, Tony is gifted with a special ability to sense this evil being that is committing serial murder. The Raft of Medusa? Oh, the Raft of the Medusa. Holy crap, yeah. Is that, is, is that the one? 
No, no. What, what I'm talking about is called Sensing Evil. But the Raptor of the Medusa is by Banana Cosmic Girl or Cosmic Girl or something like that. Um, Raptor of the Medusa also is very visually drawn, but I wouldn't call it really action. No, but it it's is. very visual. It's it's very intensely drawn. Um, could someone? I don't really have time to capture them all now. Could someone capture all the links for stories that are coming um, in this podcast? Just someone tell me who it is, so I know who to. Uh, so I know where to get, and I'll, and I'll put them in the link library after the fact, after the podcast, so that I'm not trying to d be distracted trying to capture all the links that are coming in. But the rat, the raft of the Medusa is by Banana Cosmic Girl, all one word, Banana Cosmic Girl. Um, and that is for visual, for intense visualization, it's very visually drawn. And I think that's one of the things you want in an action scene is a lot of, it, you want the intense visual, but it is not really what I would call an action story. It doesn't really have very many action scenes, but it is very intense. Um, but um, the um, the one I'm talking about with this lady, Roz, is called Sensing Evil. And uh, it, it, is, it, is cr it is creepy, it is freaky, it's beautiful, it's great writing, it's got some really, really intense action scenes in it that are really well done. Um, it's just, it's one of the stories I don't reread very often because it is very intense. I have very. to get in a very specific, specific mood for it. But that's the kind of, like, you want that consistency across the board. You want to be able, like, I personally, as a writer, want to be that consistent. I want to bring my A-game to every scene. Um, and so I work every single day to do that, you know. Speaking of which, I finished Chapter 5 of my Rough Trade today. Nice. Congratulations. I'm, I'm at 26K. Um, I think I'm on point for the word count for 50k anyway, at least. <clears throat> oh, Wraith Killers. There's something special about Wraith Killers. Yeah. It's it will hit you in the id. It will make you happy. It even the parts that are a little intense and you're like, oh, that was a lot. You're like, I don't care. <laughs> big kitties. <laughs> There's something really awesome about a big cat that will lay on you. Yeah. <laughs> and cuddle you, basically. Cuddle you to protect you from the wraith. It's amazing. <laughs> but uh, there is another. Someone mentioned earlier. And I think it's the same one. But I'm, I can't know for certain. Um, indelible. But what about it? Hmm, that's the one with the tattoos, right? Where Rodney gets a whole bunch of tattoos. Or am I mixing them up? Mm, then no, we're not in the right place. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah, and yes, Ray Killers, yes. the cats are immune. Um, there is a story um, that I can't in good, uh, that I don't recommend. Not because it's not amazing, because it is. It's amazing. It is gorgeous, and the writing is amazing. But I would not want um, to recommend it to you because it's also one of the most difficult reads i've ever read and i'm that bitch who reads freedom is just another word nothing left to lose once a year and that is sandstorms by mithron it is intense and heavy and the author will drag you kicking and screaming all the way to the end and it is emotionally over overwhelming and there are scenes in it that are so action-packed that it will leave you breathless. And then there are other scenes that will make you ugly cry. Um, so Sandstorms by Mithron. If you have a high, and I do mean high tolerance 
for insects, that's important. Um, I can't understate it. If you have a single phobia to do with insects, do not read Sandstorms by Mithron. There are reasons why I haven't read this story. It will ruin your life. Um, I started it and somebody warned me not to continue it because they understand they know about my age. And I was like, okay, no. Yeah, yeah, no. It makes those little scarab things in um, the mummy look like cotton candy. But my Mandalorian fic was beautiful, Bri. Why'd you cry? <laughs> I mean, okay. That 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 first chapter in that first book was a little difficult. But after that, it's all lightsabers and kick ass. <laughs> Bri, it, I'm, just I'm just telling you, if you can't deal with Kira's Mandalorian story, you really should not be reading. Like, <laughs> I would even characterize Kira's story as angst. So you don't definitely read anything we would characterize as angst. One of the most agonizing scenes that I wrote in A Better Man, and that's the first part of my Mandalorian series, Gratua, um, is the scene where Draw gets kidnapped. Um, and Kara runs through the covert to get him. And I was like, this is awful, this is awful, this is awful. The whole time I was writing it, I was like, awful, awful. And then I, I wrote it, and I set it aside, and I was like, I'm not, I, I, I can't even. But now, it's like one of the one scenes that sticks out for me you know when she gets into the with the hanger and she tells him you know, give me my baby and he ignores her he basically brushes her off and she kills him and takes her baby it was like because that's that's really Kara's moment where she fully acknowledges I mean she's married this man he's got he's a he's adopted two children she went from thinking she's probably never having children to having two children in her life. She's trying to figure out how to be a mom. And in that moment, she becomes one. This asshole's taking her baby and she's not having it. And so, but, so now it sticks out in my brain a lot, but not for the part that I agonized over, but for like that transition in her character. So sometimes an action scene does what it needs to do when it furthers your character's development, I guess is what I would say. I think um, that's the, one of the issues is sometimes when an action scene does not move the story forward, it doesn't matter how well it's written, it's destroying the pace. Mm. And, you know, so um, there's a, a, I was reading something recently and um, I was talking to Kira about it later and I was like, you know, people recommend, you know, I get this recommended to me on a fairly regular basis. And for me, for my reading preferences, this author's pace feels very plodding. P-L-O-D-D-I-N-G. Plodding. Like you're kind of plodding along, clip-clop, you know. And part of the issue is focusing on things that are irrelevant to the plot. Now, not necessarily action, but action scenes can be the same thing. So if an action scene is the... Sometimes it's hard to tell what an issue is with any given scene if you can't take a step back from it and really analyze it from the 50,000-foot level and go, is that doing anything? Or is it gratuitous? Like, I've had people, like, sometimes um, somebody will think that I'm writing, like, you know, a, a slice of life scene in a story. And sometimes I I don't usually write slice of life for, for the sake of itself. Usually I'm doing it with for, for another purpose. It is doing something. Now, I may not be spelling it out to the audience what I'm doing with that scene, but usually people are getting it, even if they don't realize they're getting it. Um, so, like all that Disneyland stuff, one of the reasons why I didn't show those kids going on rides and stuff, because that would have been Slice of Life. But all that other stuff was serving a purpose. Right. That's why 
it was in the story. Um, but I thought somebody mentioned to me in conversation that they would have loved to see the kids going on rides and stuff. And I'm like, that would have been like curtain fic, except it would have been cute. I get it. it, but it I would also cute. like to have seen them all hugging Mickey Mouse. But that, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Again, not necessary at all for the plot. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, I mean, part of the issue of keeping pace moving is to not not get dragged down in things that don't move your story. Um, <laughs> he had a crown, Ellie. I just didn't tell you. I promise you. That little girl dressed him up as a Disney prince for sure. <laughs> it absolutely happened. Yeah, I headcanon accepted. Um, like ha ha ha, you went and did that, but I am at Disney World, Disneyland, with this gorgeous firefighter. So, <laughs> who looks like Prince like Charming? So, you, 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 you want you me to go to see with you? Well, yes, right. You can kiss it. <laughs> um, so. Anyway, it's important. Sometimes it's not about how well the scene was written. It was like, did this do anything for your story? Because I've read, sometimes read, really good, well-drawn action scene that ruined the pacing of the story because it just had no function. It was like, why, right. did, we just, why did we just get this elaborate battle scene when a battle scene is like, this is not that kind of story, you know? Um, I, I'm going to talk about something in very vague terms because it's my quantum bank for next year. Um, I had... I came up, I, I came on a scene and originally I plotted to write the aftermath because um, it was an action scene. It's really the only action scene in the book. Um, I was going to write the aftermath, the 911 call, my character's, you know, desperation and hurt, he's hurt. This is what's happened. Um, I need help. Uh, having the cops come. You know, it's just it there was there was lots of there were lots of things that were going to happen in this particular fic, um, in this aftermath that I, but then I was like, it's not powerful. I even wrote it, but it's not powerful. It's it's not doing it, right? And so I had to go back and <clears throat> write the action scene that I didn't want to write. I think I just fucked up, didn't I? Yeah. A bit. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> not not vague enough. Not vague enough. But making that decision between writing the aftermath and writing an action scene um, can be um, difficult. And it's also my go-to. I did it in Sentinels of Atlantis where I wrote the aftermath of Elizabeth coming online. And that's what got posted. But I also wrote her not... I mean, I, I wrote her coming online. It just, it didn't work when I got ready to put the episode together. So I took it out and then I posted it as an interlude. And I feel like it worked better that way, giving, you know, the reader that little interlude to read, but dealing mostly with the aftermath of the Janai invasion in Sentinels of Atlantis, because you've already seen the Janai invasion. And one of my goals in Sentinels of Atlantis was not to rewrite, not to like overtly rewrite canon, but to provide canon events without um reinventing the wheel does that make sense so in the in the um in the thing you were alluding to earlier i think you made the right decision actually in both in examples you gave i think you made the right decision about um what to how you know in which case one to, in one in one case to cut and in the other case to go back and add because yeah, it's, it's about characterization isn't it yeah like you know because also, this is, you know, gr gratuitous violence 
goes hand in hand with writing anything that's gratuitous in your story. Do you need this extra sex scene? Is it serving your plot? Is it serving your characterization? Um, is it speaking? Is it moving your pace? Is it slowing your pace down? Is it giving your, yeah, well, Chris King always thinks there's room for sex. Um, it's her personal ice cream. Um, is it providing your reader a breather? Or is it merely just destroying your pace because you think you need to write a sex scene? I think both action and aftermath can show character growth. It's what kind of growth do you want to show? What do you want your reader to see about your character? Do you want to see them at a breaking point? Do you want to see them at that moment of survival? Or do you want to see them at that moment of relief? And what do each of these moments and events bring your character that you want your reader to see? And also, what is the tone of your story? I mean, I have read some stories where... Um, a really suddenly a hard-hitting action scene would just, it would drop like a boulder in a pond. It would not be good. Um, same thing with the sex scene. It's like if, the, if it's way off for the tone of the story, don't put it there. It's sort of like you've got this soft, sweet, gentle story, you know, and like all of a sudden it's like X-Tube. <laughs> and you're like, did somebody else write the sex scene? It sure feels that way. <laughs> That would be like me dropping in a sexually explicit scene in the middle of courting Hermione Granger. I would know because I wrote it. <laughs> it went. <laughs> it was awful. I mean, it went from drama. this this sweet romance to just straight up fucking pornographic. And it was because my sex scenes do tend to be that way. Um, and I accept that about myself. That's just what I like to write. It's just what I prefer to write when it comes to sex. I'm not going to be someone who's using a whole bunch of euphemisms and, you know, blooming flowers and shit. It's just not going to happen. Um, that means that sometimes some of my stories just aren't served well with the sex that I write. So it's better to close the door. And also, I think sometimes I skip a, an action scene for the same reason. Because sometimes the action scene that I would write would not serve my purpose. Or it would not serve my story. Um, one of the more difficult action scenes, one of the more difficult episodes I wrote for Sentinels of Atlantis is when Dean Bates came online. I mean, yeah, Battle of the Five Armies. I don't even know what the fuck I was thinking. Well, you weren't thinking, otherwise you would have, you, 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 you're giving yourself like this avoidance because you zero drafted it as just that major thing as one line. Right? Battle of the Five like, Armies. It's like you're like it won yourself, the whole fucking movie. Like, <laughs> like you're giving yourself like some sort of instant denial up front or something. But yeah, I mean, picking those moments in your series, in your story, in your novel are super important. Um, anytime I included a Sentinel coming online in Sentinels of Atlantis, it was about demonstrating circumstances. Where one comes online feral, the other one comes online in bed with his lover. John was already online. Um, it's just like these, these, how these signals are coming into their own is part of the overreaching arc of Signals of Atlantis. John running through the city to kill that race um, was a. I honestly, out of all the onlinings that I wrote for Signals of Atlantis, even though it was the most difficult to write, Dean's is my favorite. It's my he, favorite too. So, yeah. um, um, the thing here's the thing about action scenes and why they're difficult to write is if it's not something that you naturally gravitate to, 
some authors might choose to just not write them, but sometimes you need them. And that's why they can be a giant pain in the ass is because it's not your, maybe your natural skill set, And so they take more work. And so it's not that a writer who isn't naturally good at them can't be competent or be good at them. It's just that I think I do a fine job of writing action scenes when I, when I, when I need to write them, it's just, they take three, three or four times the work. Right. And it, it's, it's frustrating. And that's all it is, is. It's just, it's a frustration level because I am used to being able, there, there are part, there are certainly some types of writing that I stall out a little bit on more. Like when I want to try to get a tone right, or I'm trying to convey something, but usually when I have a good feel for a scene, I just, you know, I write it. I don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about how to structure it. Um, for me, and, I mean, I can, 5k of regular narrative or 1k of action scene in the same amount of time. Yeah, basically. It's, just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's laborious. Why, why are you like this, Kira? What's wrong with you? <laughs> and that's what it feels like. It feels like I feel like I feel like I should be doing better and I can get this whole narrative in my head about how I should be getting better at this. Da, 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 da. But, you know, there are some types of writing and action is not the only thing I, I'm going to struggle with. It's just the one that comes up more often. Um, there are, so there are, for every writer, there's going to be types of writing that they're going to struggle with more than others. And, um, you know, I, you, you don't have to pick a storyline that needs an intense action sequence. You don't have to do that. You could go, yeah, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to play to my strengths. So I'm not going there. Um, but if the story needs it, then and I want to write that story idea. Then I'm gonna figure. I'm gonna I'm gonna plod my way through that action scene. Damn it! And sometimes it does, it it does feel plotting. Like you're just like you're like you're putting together a piece of furniture from IKEA. <laughs> it just <laughs> I will I will take a piece for of me. Not from, I'm not because... saying her action scenes are that way. I'm saying I feel that way no, writing my own. See, I find pretty, once you get used to Ikea and their weird way of visual instructions, it's like, hey, I got this. I've done this whole tightening these weird little bolts before. And, and, and you know, they're trying to make some sort of weird universal instructions that anybody can, hopefully anybody can understand. And, and maybe you'll have a dresser when you're done. And who knows? Maybe you'll have just still some spare parts. <laughs> but um, I'll like, take why that Why are there over. so many extras? Is something yeah, wrong? Take, <coughs> I will take the extras over some bizarre piece of furniture um, that shipped with instructions and like nothing lines up properly, and I'm having to drill new holes and I'm missing parts and yeah. You also ask yourself, okay, if I need the Dewalt, am I reading the instructions correctly? <laughs> right. <coughs> like, is that drawer supposed to not be straight? Because if that is really the design, I put things in the so the screw holes were put a half an inch too high, huh? So the only way to fix this is for me to drill new holes. Yes, this actually happened, and never in a piece of IKEA furniture. Um, no, IKEA anyway. furniture is pretty on point. By it the way. is. It's just. It's just. It's just a pain in the. It's. Just, it is. You're right. It's plotting. It's. It feels. It's a lot like paint by number. And sometimes writing action scenes, I feel like I've gone back to. Not. It's not like it's. I feel like I'm being taken back to my fundamentals because I'm like I should I. I get this narrative in my head about should I should be past this. I agree. I feel like I should be past it too. And but I'm not. And I don't know that I ever will be. I mean, between us, we have sixty years of writing experience. Wow. <laughs> What a weird thing to say. <laughs> but accurate. It's accurate. Between the two of us, we have 60 years of writing experience. Um, I think 
closer to 70. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. you're right. Ugh. Yeah. I think I've been I writing for I've, I've been writing I wrote my I finished my first novel um 35 years ago. And I've been I started writing when I was well we started well you finished your you finished your first book when you were 12 and I I know I I know I cuz I got my first computer when I was 12 and that's when I really started writing outside of like little notebooks and stuff. Right. Yeah, I had so, a whole bunch of little notebooks. That was I'm 48 so that was 36 years ago so that's 71 years 71 years of writing experience i'll be 49 in january so it'll be 72 years combined for us well my grandma always said i was a storyteller from birth that even like as young as five and six years old she would sit me down at the kitchen table and she would ask me to tell her a story um and i would tell her all kinds of outlandishly crazy stories to entertain her while she was cooking dinner or whatever um and eventually I, I moved to notebooks. Write your little ideas down. That's what my grandfather used to tell me. Although in the rest of my family, um, storyteller from birth was the polite way of saying, what a little liar. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have a t-shirt that said I lie for a living. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so 71 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm feeling really, I'm feeling my age. But when you do have that level of writing experience you've been i've been writing 35 years i feel like i should part of me says never stop learning the other part says why the hell haven't you figured this out yet <laughs> what the fuck's wrong with you <laughs> you know so it's like a you know i never want to stop learning from my craft i never want to get to that point where i feel like i'm done and i don't need me um i don't need to grow because that's bullshit when you get there you're in a, you're in a serious world of heart creatively because you're going to end up writing the same fucking story over and over and over again. And you've all seen that writer who's putting out the same book every fucking year with just different character names. The same basic story. The same cobbled situation. And I'm not talking about using a paragraph library. I'm talking about just they they only have one story left to tell. I don't want to ever be that writer. <clears throat> yeah. But it'll be hard because you do develop expectations for yourself. And so I think that when I have a, something I'm having a hard time getting over, especially something I've been spent over 30 years trying to get over, because I don't, I didn't like action sequence when I was scenes when I was 12. So not much has changed. There is this should narrative, and I try to remind myself that the should narrative needs to end because it's not, it's kind of a toxic narrative, but it's still there. Interestingly enough, I have a book that I wrote when I was 14, um, and. I pulled it off a a disc, not the floppy, but the little square ones. What she calls it, the three point, the three and a quarter. Those are three and a half. But those are still floppies. Still yeah, floppy. floppy disc, but not the big floppy, like the little floppy. Um, years ago, and I put it on my computer, um, and it ended up on a backup drive, uh, which is great because it didn't get lost in that original drive failure. Um, and there is an action scene in it. And I honestly will say that 14-year-old me did a better job of that action scene than I could do today. Now, there are grammar issues out the wazoo, right? No joke. Um, but stylistically speaking, that action scene was on point. And I'm like, what happened? <laughs> and then I thought to myself, how long did it take me to write that? And I don't really remember. But it could have been weeks. Because back then, at 14, 15 years old, 
I didn't care if it took me a whole week to write a scene. I would take that time to do it. That's true. I had no expectations of productivity back then. I just wrote when I had time and when I wanted to. And The blue one. It was on a blue disc. Yeah. <laughs> that little blue one there. <coughs> the three and a half. Um, I mean, that terrible amnesia thing that I wrote when I was 12, um, it started with an action scene. I mean, my heroine had to get amnesia somehow. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, um, and I remember that. I remember writing. And the thing is, when I would, when I was into a story, I was, I was always into it. I, I wanted to work on it all the time. Um, and since I had, since I was time sharing my computer, I spent a lot of time writing, still writing in my notebook, and then I'd go and type it up on my computer. Um, but I don't, I don't remember. Um, I struggled a little bit. I remember struggling a little bit with action scenes, like when I would do writing <laughs> classes and stuff when I was younger. But I don't remember angsty about them the way I do now. It might come down to perspective because when I was 14 or 15 years old, my only expectation for myself was to write and to finish. So writing the end was my accomplishment. Even today, writing the end of the end of a story is it's, it's nice. I'm totally gruntled about writing the end. Um, but when I was younger, that was my goal, you know? So it wasn't about how fat, how fast I did it. It didn't matter if it took a year or so my expectations for myself were different yeah that's fair my husband transferred all of my data from those little discs onto um a um a blu-ray for me or a blu-ray was cd either one either one um and now um i have them on my hard drive and i also have that cd in my fire safe but i back up to a um i back up to a series of cds and a usb drive at least once a quarter um, I, have, I have a bunch of fucking zip disks floating around in a box somewhere. No zip drive. No zip drive. I have a zip drive, have, so if you ever need it, let me know, and I'll mail it to you. If I, if I ever find that box of zip disks, I just might do that. Um, okay, but shall we move on to the next question? Mm -hmm. What is the next question? Okay. Um, 911 fans are dealing with character choices the writers made for Chimney this season. What do you do with an in-progress story do with an impact story when emerging canon more or less blows up someone's characterization do you have any tips for salvage or is auing it always your best bet um i have that problem currently with, with requiem yeah you did have to make a choice about requiem i mean i have um, a bunch of 911s in progress um requiem being the biggest one that you guys know about um and uh i'm at that stage now where i'm trying to figure out what i want to do with this character um because he has a very different relationship with Buck in Requiem um, than he does in canon. Um, there was no slut shaming, number one. Um, Buck came into the fire station mature, um, shaped by the magic that he carries, uh, having already worked for the city for a couple of years as a civil engineer. He's just a different animal. Um, and in response, Chim responded to him differently. Uh, but Chim still did have that incident with Tatiana and getting the rebar in his head because he argued with Bobby, which Buck tried to stop, but they were both too stubborn and he didn't get to stop it. Um, but after that, they both paid attention to him when he said, yo, <laughs> y'all need to calm the fuck down. <laughs> Do you want another piece of rebar in your head? So, you know, it was like an object lesson for him. Um, but he's, the thing about Chimney is he's always been problematic. Yeah. But the thing is, I mean, it's always been there. But the thing is, I think a lot of people did set that aside in season two. His character kind of evolved 
it kind of got set aside. So whether he was always problematic or not is sort of not was not the issue people had because they kind of the show took him in a different direction from that kind of intimate fraud issues we were seeing in season one and the whole reckless driving that got miraculously excused Um, and the objectification of women. Yeah, so that all just kind of got hand-waved away, and he turned into a different guy in season three and four, and he was generally likable. And so I see people have a lot of stuff in process, that has him in both the traditional season two, three, four canon light, but also in the traditional fanon um, view of him, which is, you know, loving, supportive blah 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 and there's some stories i've really enjoyed where you know he and buck are even closer than what you see in in canon um yeah it is it is it is easy now it's easy to look back at like especially like season four and see more obsessive behavior but anyway and then season five comes along and there's gonna be some spoiler content in here and all of a sudden it's like his behavior took a terrible turn and all of a sudden there's this intersection between season one and season five that is terrible. It's terrible. He's and obsessive. It makes you, He's yeah, controlling. It makes, you, it makes you look at his two season behavior in season two, three, and four in a different light. And I can understand why if you've got something in process, what do you do? Now, if that story, there's there's several different paths you could take. And it depends upon what you want to do. Because one path so i think we should just talk about the possible options here one path okay. is if, if your story is already in post posted like you're you're posting a whip um one option is to just keep going forward if you can but if it's destroying your love for the story you're gonna have to go back and edit your story it's your shit you can fix it if the story is and that's my only two potential options if the story is already being posted is either figure out how to go forward with the story as you plotted it, go back and fix it. Or you could just evolve the character through your story to be more how you see him. Have him do something problematic in your story that will allow you to start them different. Because um, this this is, we're using 9-1 as an example, but this could happen in any canon. This is one of the dangers of writing in a show with a live canon, is the character, they do something, hello MCU. <laughs> that reminds that makes, me. I got, a con- hate. I got a contact form that said that I, when I was talking about dead cannons, it freaked her out. She said, I got what you meant, but it was so creepy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Steve Rogers is another example of a very problematic character that um, really ruined an actual ship in fandom for a lot of people. It was a big ship, too. Yeah. I mean, even my mother, who doesn't who doesn't ship, she got it. I mean, when I that that whole thing when she thought that people were she when she thought that there was that piece of fan art between the a frost iron fan art. My mother thought was a promo for an upcoming movie, and she said it to me, going, "I don't get it." I said, "Mom, that's fan art." She goes, "Really?" I was, like, "Yeah, yeah, mom, that's fan art." She goes, "Oh, okay." And she goes, "People really put like, and, and Tony Stark together." I'm like. Yeah, she goes, really? Because his chemistry was much better with Steve Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve Rogers didn't try to throw him out of a building. <laughs> that was hot. I'm just kidding. That so, one was not hot. Yeah. <laughs> but, and that, this was all, this is after the first Avengers movie. So she thought, after seeing that first Avengers movie, she thought they had good chemistry. And then they, and so it was a big ship. 
that was a bit, and, and they did. They kind of they had that sort of not enemies lovers, but adversaries to lovers kind of vibe. They kind of were really sparking on each other, and then they were really tight by the end of the movie. And it kind and of and then it was that, like that would be so hot, right? <laughs> if they banged um, right here, <laughs> and then they ruined it for us. And then they ruined it. And, be, and because it was because the writers had the character do character that do, did thing do things in the canon that there was no walking back, and so authors had a choice of what to do. Now, in my case, because I wanted to, now I wrote Sentry after that point. You know, I was already fed up with Steve Rogers, but I chose to write. I wanted to have this idea for Sentry where I wanted to write Steve as a good guy, and my only option for that in that case was to set the story before the winter so because i needed him to not make those mistakes and change the head that the 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 trajectory for rogers so that he was not gonna go down that same sanctimonious self-righteous i know better than everybody else and i'm gonna fuck the whole world while i'm proving that i'm right path and and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to pull off him and Tony getting together. But as I was writing the story and seeing him evolve, I, I, I found, refound my own interest in their chemistry and why I had originally liked the ship. So I felt like it worked. It's not something I would seek to do again um, because that was a very specific thing I was trying to accomplish. The Steve is Tony's grandfather storyline as opposed to the Tony Steve, Tony Stark Steve Roger's ship. So I was trying to accomplish a specific storyline that I was achieved by setting it before the problematic events in canon. And when it comes to 911, you can have the same approach is if you don't want to deal with the Jim's problematic actions, set it before. But if your head canon is too altered to to go down that path to just set it before those events, um, like set it in season four, um, so I know how you meant that, but you could mean that literally too. She said in the chat room that Chimney could die in a fire. Yes, that's one way of dealing with the character. If you if you're in a work in progress and you don't want to um, continue and you're wanting to figure out a way to eat that character, um, any character, you can kill them. Yeah. Stop, stop a major character warning on that shit and move on. <laughs> yeah. You can have. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, Hale. I mean, I wouldn't... It, killing him is not a path I would go down, personally, but... Because, um, honestly, I have as many issues with Maddie as I do with... Um, and I know that... Um, I expect to have more issues with Maddie going forward than I do Chimney. Yeah. Because what he did... And there are two ways to look at it, and you, you have explored it in fic. Um, is either he lost control of himself and punched her brother in the face... Or he chose to punch Buck in the face because he could get away with it. Either way, if she stays with him, she is staying with a man who sees violence as a solution. Or he's so mentally out of control, he's violent. Now, so as either- a woman coming out of a domestic violence situation, that is untenable. Right. So either she's in another potentially abusive relationship, which would I would think would be terrifying, or she stays with a man who purposefully physically abused her brother right who in all but but all but for a piece of paper is his own brother-in-law um which is one of the reasons why i wrote it i wrote it obliquely at the end of toxic that it wouldn't matter whether maddie and chimney stayed together or not that either outcome was going to hurt buck because it doesn't 
her choosing her her losing a relationship with the father of her baby is going to hurt her. Buck is going to that's going to be painful for him to see her go through that. Her choosing to stay with somebody who hit him is going to be painful for him. So he, it's a lose lose situation for him at that point. And I I I don't see it as anybody a lose lose situation for Buck no matter what. So it's not great. And all these echoing behaviors from you know the objectification, the temper issue, because he, he he got so mad at Bobby, he stormed out of work and drove recklessly and nearly got himself killed. And so he's already demonstrated his temper once. The intimate fraud, the objectification, the obsessional behavior, the enablement. It's all there. And he enabled Maddie so much that realistically he should have gone home and found one or both of them dead. I mean, when he that's talks, the fucking truth. When he talks when he when he see, when he breaks Maddie's confidence to tell Hen about Maddie's PPD, um, he tells her that they didn't want anybody to know. Maddie doesn't want anybody to know that she can't handle. It, da, 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 da. I mean, they're so the whole toxic secret thing. It's just so ugly. But he's obviously willing to eventually. That's months in months. And the thing is, I do make allowances for the fact that Jim is probably by the point that point laboring under some pretty severe depression himself. He's living with somebody, but the thing is, his own. He had to wonder every time he left if they were going to. And he even talks about that actually in canon. If basically, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, if every time he comes home, if they're going to be okay, that he he worries every time he leaves the house. And yet, but he's not he, doing he a damn thing about do it. Do anything about it? And so I do think he had probably become pretty severely. Um, depressed himself and was unable kind of that forest for the trees kind of situation mm -hmm. so the two of them terribly enabled their own poor mental health um and the person who's to come out unfortunately on the losing end of it no matter which way it goes is gonna be buck and g um g's living in a car seat at this point in canon at the age when she should be learning to walk and she's not getting any tummy time she's not getting to walk there's no telling how, so, what kind of eating schedule she's got, what kind of sleeping schedule she's got. You know, speaking as someone who has fucked up sleeping problems into adulthood, when I was that age, my father worked a third shift job. So what my mom did to keep the peace in her house was that she would keep me up all night and then we would all three sleep during the day. And to this day, that has impacted my ability to sleep at night. It really, honestly, fucked up my circadian rhythm as an as a toddler, and it never got any better. Um, someone said talking about whether or not you would accept um, in reality, if you would accept, if you had good boundaries, if you would accept an apology from for being hit. Um, there is a difference between accepting an apology and accepting behavior. If a member of my family hit me, the way chimney hit Buck and sincerely apologize for it, I would forgive them. What I would not do is, one, ever be alone with them again. Two, I would not forget it, ever. And I would not ever, under any circumstances, excuse it. Nor would I hide it. I'd be like, yeah, he hit me, so we don't talk anymore. Because forgiveness doesn't equal tolerance, and it doesn't equal you can come to my house again. <laughs> That, you know, you can forgive somebody and never want to see them again. That is perfectly valid. Because at that point, forgiveness is about you, not them. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah. <clears throat> and you can, um, and I could see 
I think he's the forgiving sort. But the thing is, canon doesn't set any precedent that Shem. Because the thing is, I think if somebody's going to be contrite for an act of violence, the contrition has to come right away. Like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Weeks in. Because if Chimney was a good person, and the moment he hit Buck, he probably would have just fell apart. And instead, you go like a week or two later, and he's refusing to talk to Buck. He's leaving. And apparently, messages. Buck owes him an apology. Yeah, he's leaving outgoing messages saying, you know, if, you know, leave a message to beep unless this is Buck. Stop, if this is Buck, stop calling. Um, making snarky comments that Buck sends him to the wrong place. He's going to kill him. You know, because Buck figures out where Maddie is and he sends Chimney to go get her. And then Chimney's on the phone with, you know, um, Hen saying, if he sent me to the wrong place again, uh, you know, or whatever. Um yeah, and Hen is Hen's enablement of Chim is just—it's honestly—and the problem is, is all of this whole arc is affecting my view of all the characters, which is unfortunate, right. including including Eddie. Yeah, which not not as badly as Hen, but Hen whole offering to go with Chim on this road trip with, I'm like, what, what are you kidding? Not. How about I take care of your kid instead of you hauling her around in a car seat? Not instead of giving him a, a reality check. But I think that the problem is, is the writers, I think they made a bad turn. And I think that this is why sometimes you need somebody to reality check you and go, this is a bad idea. I mean, it's um, like, dudes, we know it was a bad year. Okay. We all, we were all home at the same time. We understand. We know, we know we're, we're still getting grocery delivery. We get it. But this is not the way. Yeah. <laughs> this is absolutely so, not the way. So what do you do? So one of the things you can try to do is instead of being positive on the character, you can try to be neutral. I'm doing my best with my quantum, with my quantum pang, with my rough trade to be character neutral at this point. Um, although in my next part, there is some exploration of the season one crap because I alluded to it. I foreshadowed that there was going to be a conversation between Buck and Eddie about why Buck felt like there were some unfortunate undercurrents between him and Chimney. And Eddie finally asked him about that in this next chapter. Uh, I think I think that foreshadowing is in chapter two or chapter three. I can't remember exactly. Um, <coughs> Buck has asked me again later. Ask me again at the time. Well, that other time comes in chapter seven, um, which might wind up being, you know, if I break up those two enormous chapters, it might wind up being chapter nine. But look, that's a whole other issue. Um, but he, he, Eddie asks about, well, what are the undercurrents? And Buck explains to him. And so I do explore, and the funny thing is, I think I'm basically exploring canon, and I'm bringing basically bringing up canon events and Buck's interpretation of events we saw in canon, which is I honestly think that Buck would find that intimate fraud extremely offensive. He does, and I, he talks about that. He tells he 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 explains he to call he calls it to, to you know talks to Eddie about it. He talks about it, it was really hard for him, especially with how he was slut shamed and stuff. Is that and he thinks it actually. Um, the part of the reason he was slut shamed so hard by the them, but he and he mentions to Eddie about the line to get laid, and Eddie kind of pauses and thinks about it, and it's like it's kind of a foreign concept to him, the idea of and Buck's like, you know, people lie to get laid, and he's like, yeah, of course I do. It's just it doesn't gel for him the idea of yeah committing fraud to get laid because for him it takes a Nothing. while to get in, to get interested. But, I enough mean, there to, there are two parts of that, right? He's demisexual, but if he wanted to get laid, all he would have to do was walk into a bar. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> but so for him, there's this disconnect. He knows that he knows it logically, but so but 
but for him, like it doesn't like he doesn't just like assume that people are lying to get laid. And so when he when he realizes that Chimney has had this past, he's, he's sort of like he's just astonished that he's got this history of lying. And they and then and then Buck points out that there was you know considering that Chimney had done that that people, even though Buck has never lied to get laid in his life. Um, that when he, there was the whole catfishing thing, people thought that Buck was cheating on Abby and they thought that he was lying to these women and that they all had initially assumed, everybody had initially assumed that Buck was just a big liar. Um, and that, um, and that, you know, he, so he goes into some of this stuff and he said, the, the other thing is that when he had found out that he said, when he, when he found out that the way Chimney was describing himself and the way Chimney was representing himself to this badge and ladder groupie, which is basically to me what Tatiana was, was basically mm-hmm. a badge and ladder groupie. Um, is it the person Chimney was trying to be was an amalgamation of Bobby and Buck. Buck. Yeah. And, um, and that he felt like that he got, you know, shitty treatment from more um, acerbic, more caustic treatment from Chimney because Chimney resented the fact that he wanted to be, that he was lying and pretending to be basically pretending to be Buck. And that that own his own inadequacy, he was taking it out on Buck. Um, and that that well, was it, Buck's It's interesting about his inadequacy is it's not just the first time. I mean, we see it later on in his episode, um, Chimney Begins, where you find out that he has a history of lying about his work performance. That it not that it's not just to get laid, but he also used to lie to the Lees about what he was doing at work because he was ashamed of what was happening, and so he has a history of lying due to his inferiority complex. Yeah, and, and I'd have been like, if I was like, I'd be like, you know what, dude, I don't actually want you dating my sister, but that's just me. Right? <laughs> I would have probably warned her. I'd have been like, no, you can't. I mean, I mean, yeah, I'm not gonna tell you you can't date him, but you need to know that he lies to women to get laid, um, and this is this is just a thing that he does. So, um, just be aware. Yeah. So. Oh God, I don't. I didn't remember that piece of dialogue, Bry. Was that actual dialogue? I figured that was something Bry was making up. Oh God. Oh God. The actual dialogue is, yeah, it is, but come on, some dude doing the boring legwork, having hotties come to your door. I mean, what? Is that really that awful? That's Chimney's opinion oh. on catfishing. Well, he basically catfished Tatiana. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> after a fa- you know, after a fashion. I mean, he he might as well have been that guy in the trailer, right? Right. Pretending to be pretending to be Buck. It's just it was done differently. Um but so in in this chapter seven, I'm basically just kind of exploring what was actually happened in season one, and how it it's it fed into why Buck is being less tolerant with these barbs because he's just not in the mood. He's just not going to put up with it because he's not. You know, he's like he tells Eddie, I don't. Of course, I don't begrudge him having insecurity issues. It's not even about that. It's just why is he taking it out on me? You know. Um. I don't personally think Chimney was ever Buck's friend. No, I don't think so either. And right now, he's like that toxic cousin that comes to the family reunion and talks shit about everybody. One of the reasons why I think Buck didn't um, Buck didn't warn Maddie about Chimney is because even though he it took a while to see for him to see the romance vibes between the two of them, but the two of them kept denying that anything was going on. Right. 
So it was a long time. That was a, and I think the writers were doing that very deliberately because of Maddie's past with the slow build between Maddie and Jamie. Right. Um, and so by the time it was clear that something was going to happen, I think Buck would have been, that was a really shitty time to warn her. But, um, so what, so back to what can you do? Um, try to go neutral on the character as much as possible. You don't have to have a love fest on him. Um, I know that there are, um, I mean, the funny thing is, is in the wake of this, in the wake of this, um, bad behavior in season five, which is canon and the, the, the backlash from a really, honestly, a very tiny part of fandom has explored there have not been a lot of stories that have, compared to like almost any other major arc compared the number of stories that have explored the ramifications of this thing between Buck and Chimney are minuscule. I would guess less than a hundred, but the backlash against those stories has, um, uh, um, the backlash against, um, those stories has been immense to the point that even people who aren't, part of that whole really abusive group of people who are defending Maddie and Chim are putting things more chimney positive in their stories than they usually do. Like instead of just writing him the way they usually write him, it's like all of a sudden it's like this chimney love fest that I've never seen in their work before. Um, like it's utterly bizarre. Um, and, and it's like the, the, yeah, we've talked about the gatekeeping in that fandom, but um I would say you got to figure out your vision for the character and and go with it to a point. If the work is already in progress, you got to decide how much going with your vision is going to derail the work. Can you can you work with your new vision in the story you've got? I was able to kind of do that, not completely work with my new vision with the story I had plotted for Rough Trade. Um I had to go a little bit more neutral than I would probably go with a story I wrote new today but i didn't want to completely replot but i was able to take shift to a more neutral place with that character um as opposed to a very pro very positive place and that helped and then it helped to also just address some issues head on and kind of just kind of take the character more out of the story um than have them playing any kind of major role um i kind of have his major major function in the story is you know maddie's emotional support character so he's not really fulfilling a major function as far as i'm concerned um, <clears throat> but um so there's there's the option of just going your own path if if that path is now like in i would say in i was gonna say in mcu if like if you go the path of anti steve rogers like that path for the most part you'll probably be okay but there are some people who will come after you for writing anti steve rogers but i would say that the whole pro team iron man kind of thing is bigger segment than the team captain america but that could be just my perception but i do know what i do know is that the interesting thing about this is usually the characters that i perceive as being canonically in the wrong their stands are the ones that tend to be the ones that are abusive in comments and are chasing the other side and abusing them as opposed to just letting everybody have their own segment of fandom and leaving people alone so some people can't allow you can't they, they feel like they can't allow other people to have opinions that don't match their own yeah so it's like i think that like wanda's behavior in mcu and steve rogers behavior in mcu was abysmal and i actually think as much as i want to like sam wilson i think his enablement of captain america is gross it's, it's super gross so um but 
what happened, I don't go finding pro Wanda stories to abuse the writers and tell them they shouldn't be writing that. And I don't see a lot of that behavior happening. But what I do see is that people write pro Tony Stark stories that have Tony breaking away from Steve Rogers. The Steve Rogers stands will come out sometimes in force and just go all off in the comment thread. And to the point that then the author will come in and, you know, you'll, you'll see an author note going, I will be deleting any comments that are abusive because just because you don't like the story, you know, because you're a big Steve Rogers fan. And we see the same thing happening in the 9-1 fandom where the Buck fans are not out there abusing the stories of people who are writing pro-chimney stories. That's just not happening. I don't see it. And I've gone and looked. But the people who are part of, like, whatever chimney and defense league that is happening out there are going out, <laughs> and, you know, what a, any story that explores the idea that chimney might have been in the wrong. Even though they'll say chimney shouldn't have hit Buck. But if the story explores the idea that he was in the wrong, um, they'll go abuse him in the comments thread. For some reason, called the writer, the writer of the story a racist, which I don't get that um what's really interesting is he every character that you've named has done abusive things and their fans go around abusing people for pointing out the abuse ron weasley <clears throat> severus mm -hmm. snake albus dumbledore scott mccall scott mccall chimney on 911 all of these characters have done abusive Gibbs have done abusive, ugly things to um, Steve Rogers, committed sedition, overtly. And he not only betrayed his country, but he betrayed dozens upon dozens of S.H.I.E.L.D. assets who were not Hydra, and he probably got them killed. So he is probably an accessory to the murder of maybe a hundred people. That's, that's Steve Rogers. That's Captain America right there. Natasha didn't commit treason. She did commit espionage, though. Because I don't know if Natasha is actually an American citizen. I'm sure S.H.I.E.L.D. made that happen for her. I'm sure she wouldn't have worked for them without it. Or they gave her some kind of built-in immunity so she didn't need it. Can you get immunity from that kind of thing? I don't know. I guess it depends on how shady S.H.I.E.L.D. is. And what kind of backdoor deal she got. Because, But that doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, it's about... Natasha doesn't surprise me. None of her actions surprised me in Captain America and the Winter Soldier. Absolutely nothing she did um, surprised me. Because that's just what she is. But there are, you know, deeply problematic characters in most in most fandoms. Um, and how you choose to write them can lead to you suffering long-ass emails from the Ron Weasley Defense League. <laughs> Why don't you write an essay? <laughs> yeah <coughs> and an essay fuck that essay um um i've never gotten any grief for how i write severus snape because even the people who totally love severus snape knows he's a bastard <laughs> they're like yeah okay i still love him but i know he's a bastard <laughs> mm-hmm <laughs> Oh, <laughs> but then there are some characters like Chimney who, if he wasn't attached to Maddie Buckley, think about it. If he was in a romantic relationship with someone other than Maddie Buckley, do you think he would have as many people on his side as he does in fandom? No, of course not. No, absolutely. It's really about her. It's right, about absolutely. fetishizing her. Right. Because, um, 
And honestly, because of that, Maddie's Buck's connection to Maddie. If Chimney had no connection to Maddie at all, romantically, it they'd be anti Chimney to the max because they hurt. He hurt Maddie's baby brother. Right now, what are they going to do if the writers on nine one one were smart enough to come back and Maddie say, "You know what? I can't be with you anymore. You abused my brother." I can't trust you. I can't trust you with me. I can't trust you with our child. You either lost control of your temper and hit somebody, a member of our family, or you hit him because you could. So you yep. can't be in my life anymore. Well, if that happened, they would, I don't know what they would do, because the thing is, that's that's the stance that a lot of people have taken, that this is why what Chimney did is problematic. And they're like, oh, no, Maddie will understand. Maddie will understand. So they'd have to back down on their own opinions. So I don't think people like that can afford to admit that they're wrong. What's to understand, though? Either she, well, what what they're saying is Maddie will understand that she's had a baby with an abuser. When people point any of this stuff out to them, they say that we don't understand the nuance of the situation and the stress that Chimney was under. I said, I think you're erasing the nuance of the situation. But whatever. Because what it, what what does she accept? That she's living with and had a child with a man who abuses, physically abuses other people. That's what she's accepting? Yeah, apparently. What else could she possibly be accepting? Do, I mean, their whole, their rationale for why she will accept chimney hitting him is it's it's and if you don't like it apparently if you don't like chimp's behavior you're a racist i guess in their mind but i mean this is what happens when you go against when you wind up not liking a character who is and the thing is maddie's a little bit of a different character situation because maddie a lot of the issues i don't know that anybody there are a few people I, i've talked to who do outright dislike maddie but i don't think anybody like i don't think i've ever read anything that like bashes her but there are some people who she has had some problematic behavior and any exploration of that problematic behavior is met with like this wall of abuse from the the Maddie stands and chimney falls under the protection because that she's Maddie's he's Maddie's, you know, the next time somebody says, Oh, you're racist for not liking chimney's behavior. I'm going to say, okay, do they have to be, you have to be specifically Korean to have a problem with his behavior or could it be somebody who's Chinese? Could they have a problem with his behavior or is it just Koreans? Could they have a problem? Could anybody in Asia have a problem? Or is it just Koreans? Otherwise, we're all racist? Well, they're also making an assumption about the uh, race of the people that are writing the right? stories they don't like. <laughs> making a big assumption. They probably mean bigot, actually. But, right. Because. But I'm not going to try to educate. It's not really our job, people. is it? That's too much nuance <laughs> for them. <laughs> Yeah, that's not how that works. Um, the the biggest issue with these people is that, like you pointed out in the prior past, is that they're so fixated and so fetishized, fe- fetishizing a fictional character because of her abusive past that they abuse real people. Yeah. So. And they're okay with that. They're so wrapped up in reveling and wallowing in her history that they're perfectly okay with verbally and emotionally abusing real people. So as a writer, it is very difficult when you, when this happens in an active canon, whether it's 
MCU, NCIS. Um, I mean, when Gibbs went off the rails in season, he kind of started going off the rails in season three really significantly, but he was massively off the rails in season four. And when that started happening, it was kind of this slow boil. And then it just, it was hard to know, like, I don't know how much more I get this I can take. Like, like the Tony Gibbs shippers are all kind of like sitting there clutching their, their pearls, the sensible ones, going, I don't know how much more of this I can take until we just started, like, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to tell somebody else because Tony's not the problem here, right? Um, but there's people who are living in just ramp, rampant denial about the whole, t- the, the problematic issues with Gibbs' behavior. Um, to be fair, though, at least they're not running around for, you know, abusing people. It was always the Ziva Tony shippers for abusing people um again they're defending someone who is canonically abusive ziva yeah it's like they i don't know what they're seeing in these people uh, but the thing is if you like a character who's who's got who's problematic in canon okay just move on be be like the severus snape fans okay they know he's a dick it's part of what they like about him <laughs> it probably that's probably true and they acknowledge it. Oh, he's such a bastard, but look at him. Right? Um, we like, look at my we little like bastard. His, we like his snark, okay? So we're moving on. Um, just own own that you like an asshole. I mean, we probably all at some point or another. I mean, I admit, I rooted for the mummy in the mummy movie. I did. Right? <laughs> I mean, I love Rick and Evie, but <laughs> he got a and, raw and deal. The- I am a tip, you know, I know he shouldn't have been banging the Pharaoh's, you know, he shouldn't have been, he shouldn't have been banging the Pharaoh's mistress. He shouldn't have been, but that was kind of, she was a pure heifer too. She She was was a complete heifer. He could have done so much better. (laughs) Yes. And shadow. I agree. I own, I own it. I like Hannibal. I can't think of honestly. A bigger I've liked Hannibal Lecter since the beginning. Since yeah. I watched Silence of the Lambs, I've liked Hannibal Lecter. I didn't think he was hot until the TV series. That's Mad's fault. <laughs> We're playing Mad's fault. But I, I, I liked. I even liked the Hannibal Lecter from I because way before Silence of the Lambs, I liked the Hannibal. He was very different. The one I don't remember the actor's name, but the one from Manhunter. Um, that um, was a much more cerebral. Yeah, uh, I know who you interpretation. mean. He was very, he actually in some ways was a little bit creepier for being, because he was so, um, that whole thing he did with that dial phone, he conning, mm. conning, conning Will's, Will Graham's address out of that, the publisher, the publisher yeah. assistant. But sometimes you just like an asshole, but you just yeah. own it. And you go, yeah. And, and when somebody else hates the asshole that you like, you're like, okay, it's fine. Yeah, I know Hannibal's a monster and he eats people, but. <laughs> but anyway, but. <laughs> I like, but I like. We all have, have like our problems. We all have flaws. <laughs> you don't. You don't have to like him. That's okay. It's all right. I, I'm not saying you have to like him. I won't even talk to you about him. But and the thing is, with some some characters like that, you know, you. But some fans can like a problematic character and go, "Yeah, I shouldn't be rooting for Imhotep, but I am anyway." Um, now I was actually really sad in Mummy Two when at the end. That heifer abandoned even, him. Yeah, I was like, the thing is, I wasn't really rooting for him in the second Mummy movie because even though I still liked him, it was because I didn't really want him to be with her. So, yeah, but I did. In the, in the first movie, I was all on board. The I think Imhotep should kind of win this one. Um, but 
these people who like these can't these characters that the show the thing is the show's trying to tell us that they're good guys but their behavior is problematic and they don't want to analyze the problematic behavior and just deal with the fact that some people aren't going to overlook the problems um they can get really abusive towards other members of fandom and um and they can try to gatekeep your writing and your reading experience so when you're going to go down that path of changing oh thank you ty <laughs> um <laughs> when you're going to go down the path of of writing an interpretation that is especially one that veers away from the conventional fandom norm be prepared for the abuse for starters and prepare to delete and move on um i think deleting I th is very important you need to police your space it's as I tell you not to respond to trolls, that's fine. I don't consider deletion a response. I consider it a, a boundary that you're setting for yourself to protect yourself. And you have every right to do that. Okay? Absolutely. <sighs> now, you had talked about in, in uh, Requ Requiem earlier mm -hmm. that you with, you've kind of changed course with Jimmy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know how far I'm going to go with it. Because I... I did plan to follow that canon relationship uh, just because I, I didn't want to really deal with either one of those characters overall. Um, but it's becoming more difficult to ignore Chimney's very problematic characterization on the show. Um, and I, I wonder from a character point of view from if when I'm writing Requiem is like, has Buck's influence on Chimney in this particular story? And he's he's influencing all the people around him, obviously. He's making changes and choices that impact them in ways that he probably isn't even aware of. Has he made enough changes around him so that Chimney isn't as problematic or won't become as problematic as he did in canon? And the thing is, I think that's possible because I don't see I don't see the chimney in because I think he respects Buck a lot in in what the way you wrote him in Requiem, and so it's very AU. I don't think we see that respect for Buck in canon, uh, so I do think there's a lot of respect for Buck in what you've written. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it would ever get to the point that he would hit Buck in in the Requiem type verse for any reason, especially um, after what happens in episode two. <laughs> I think he'd hesitate to take a swing at anybody that Diaz was involved with. <laughs> you know, I was just like, right? I'm not sure I want to pick that fight. <clears throat> um, so I think that I think any course of action that get, helps you through is 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 the right course of action. If it's go back and reconceptualize the character and go forward from there. If it's try to just stick to your guns and see if you can get through. If that's ruining your love of the story, then maybe that doesn't work. Um, if if it's making the character have less of a significant role. Yeah, keep them off screen. That way you avoid bashing them. Uh, you don't get the attention that you don't want. Um, and then you don't have to write them either. You know, just keep them off yeah. screen. Yeah, just, you know, I have a ridiculous number of shortish stories, like between 10 and 15K, kind of like percolating around where Buck basically leaves 118 over all of this crap. That's, I'd be considering how 
every story, almost every story, not every, I'll say 99% of the Buck, Buck Leaves stories that have been written in fandom result in Buck winding it back at the 118. Um, you know that's not going to be a popular kind of trope ever because it's just the whole 118 is family thing is like the big vibe. It is fandom. a big vibe, but in some situations that family is deeply toxic. Yes, and I think that the, I think that the real. So I think you have to do now. It what the problem is is that nine one one presents a particularly difficult set of circumstances because if we're talking about an MCU type situation, that's easy because if your story that you were working on is a Tony Steve story. Which, honest to God, all I said this before, but all of the fucking Tony Stark ship names are awesome, except for Stony. Why not Iron Shield? Right? We've got we've got Frost Iron, we've got Iron Panther, we've got Winter Iron. Why Stony? I never like ship names. I don't like them except right there. It's got these great plethora of great ship names, and then they're Stony. It was almost like it was not they- meant to be. Like that fandom had actually read the comics and knew that Captain America was going to be a dick. Right. <laughs> Which, you know, fair. Um, confession. So, I've never read any Frost Iron. Not one single fic. I think you mean, yes, you have, because you've read. You, well, you mean you've never. So you wrote it, but you never read it? Right. Oh, you little weirdo. <laughs> I read my own. <laughs> well, that's good. It's good. Um, I've read a couple. I mean, it's not the thing is. I will tell you that one of the, my the biggest obstacles for me with Frost Iron is the um, often the the graphic violence is a bit much. Mm. There's a lot of intense, deep Loki wump in a lot of it. I can't I can't get there. Um, so where I was going with that is like, let's say you're you you're in the middle of writing a. Let's say I was in the middle of writing a Steve story. Uh, Willow called it super, super. I assume you're referring to Stony as super husbands. Is that that what super husbands was? I don't know. I think that's what she meant by super husbands. I greatly prefer murder husbands. <laughs> okay. Um, so super husbands is better than Stony. So let's say I'm writing a super <coughs> husband story and, and Winter Soldier happened and I just was so disillusioned I couldn't deal with it. Or worse than, let's say I managed to get past Winter Soldier, but I found out about the secret. And civil war happened, and I just like, oh, I can't deal. He's been keeping the secret about all along, and I can't, it's changed my perception of the character too much. I can't write positive Steve Rogers. I would probably go back and change my pairing. Now it becomes a problem if you can't conceive of Tony Stark with anybody else, but I can right. easily conceive of Tony Stark with other people. So you know, Tony Denoso to the rescue. I just would change his name. So that's probably the way I would do it. It becomes a bigger problem. Um, when, and, but that's in a primary ship. I would never go forward where my primary relationship in a story was a character I was having a hard time writing and was problematic for me. Now, with Sentry, even though Steve Rogers is a problematic character for me, I did set it at a point in which Steve Rogers was not problematic, but also my primary pairing was not Rogers Stark. My primary right. pairing was Thor Dinozo. So that made a difference into my ability to tolerate having Steve Rogers in the story as a primary character. Um, so I would never, I don't think I could write again a problematic character in the, in a primary, in the primary relationship. Um, but the situation with 
chimney is a little bit different and a little harder to decouple because if let's say your main character is Buck or your main relationship is Buck and Eddie and Buck and Mad Maddie's relationship as brother-sister is a central feature in your story and canonically she's attached to this person that you have a hard time with and Buck I mean, the, the canon threads are very difficult to unpick Buck works with Chimney. Maddie is at least living with and has a child with Chimney. How do you begin to unpick that if you're writing a story that's even set, let's say it's just set in season four. It's not even, let's say it's not even set during the problematic event. But let's say your view of the character has changed drastically. What do you do? Well, that's where it comes to keep the character off screen as much as possible. Maddie sees, comes and sees. It's mentioned that Chimney was at dinner, but you don't actually show the dinner. I mean, there's all of these things you can do to try to make you it be... You just kind of ride around them without actually writing them? Yeah. Definitely writing around them. Um, and do a that dance. is... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do a little dance, do a little avoidance. <laughs> and sometimes I don't know what else to do when I'm starting having a problem with a character. Is to That's what I call going neutral on them. Is try not to bash them, try not to change the canon circumstances too much. Just trying to write them out of my story as much as possible um if they have a central role in my story i'm probably going to replot i'm probably going to plot somebody else into that space now there's nothing wrong maddie and chimney could break up and you could have it be over something else entirely they could break up they could have an amicable separation chimney could get promoted if you wanted to do a um nice way of handling it let's say oh actually here let's try this let's say maddie and chimney stay together they get married Chimney gets promoted to captain at a different station, so Buck doesn't have to work with him anymore. Chimney's not on screen in your story at all. He works a completely different shift from Buck. He's a B-shift captain. He and Buck's schedules never are compatible, so it's really rare that he has dinner nights with both Maddie and Chimney, and Buck is so sad. <laughs> you said it's so fucking sincere. I mean, if you want to break them up without involving Buck... You could rehash his intimate fraud. Yeah. Um, he's a pathological liar. The idea that he hasn't lied to Maddie is ridiculous. Of course he has. Of course he has. You could, if you don't want to get in the Buck thing, but you want to set it in season five, you could have Maddie come back and break up with him over the fact that he took G on the road. You took I, I left because I wanted her to be safe, and I know I wasn't in my right head, but you ignored my wishes, and you took my daughter during her formative years, and you had her living in a car seat and in motels. What the fuck were you thinking? And they could be that they fight so much about that that they eventually split up. So, you know, you could... Um... <laughs> Maddie makes best friends with Tatiana. <laughs> I think it's Tatiana and Chimney reconciled as sort of, sort of at least... Not friend, not enemies. Um, in season two, when she got pregnant, got married, and stuff, um, they meet briefly in the hospital. Um, I don't remember where they bumped. Yeah, they bump into each other at the hospital when he's doing his check, getting his checkup, and then they go and they have coffee together. And Chim was, it was uncomfortable. It should have been better than it was because Chim was very focused on the fact that he was Mister April in the calendar, and it was just kind of like the secondhand embarrassment was real. <sighs> um. 
I cannot stand to be embarrassed for somebody else. I'd rather, you know, honestly, this is going to sound so weird. And you're going to think, Kira, take your ass back to the ther therapist. I'd rather be embarrassed for myself than be than watch somebody else be embarrassed. Yeah, secondhand embarrassment is just, I can't deal with it. Um, because not only am I embarrassed for them, I also have all this empathy about how upset they are. <laughs> right? It's like, it's like, well, actually, the worst part is, is when they're not embarrassed, when the author has just written something that's terribly embarrassing and, like, nobody's bothering cringy. to register that it's embarrassing. It's like... I'm, I have I'm, noped out out of more than one fic because I was I'm gonna embarrassed. I'm gonna be embarrassed for all of us here, and it's it's so mortifying. I'm just gonna go have to go eat a pint of ice cream <laughs> until I get over it. But one of the things I would say about this whole thing about a character's shift is I think one of the most important thing to do is to you got to sit down with yourself. You got to meet yourself in the mirror on this one, and maybe talk it out with somebody. Like verbalize what the issues are, because sometimes there's more going on with your writing decisions than how you see the character. Sometimes it's you don't want to deal with the fandom backlash about how you're feeling about the character. Sometimes it may just be as simple as you don't want to replot your story because it's inconvenient. Um, sometimes it may be that you are seeing the character too differently to write them the way your story is plotted, but you feel like you're worried about going too negative. You're worried that if you kind of unleash, you know, it's going to unleash the crack and then you're going to destroy, you know, whatever um and maybe in that case you need to write something to get that bitterness out that's different than this big thing you've got going on but it's really important to kind of pick out and tease out and figure out everything that's going on with you creatively about what why you would and would not want to shift your approach because sometimes it has a lot it, there's more going on i would say many times there's more going on than just um what the approach to take in the writing because i have to admit some of my angst about what i was going to do for my rough trade was my feelings about chimney were so negative at the beginning of rough trade and i had to stop watching the show for a few weeks and i was just having to rely on people to let me know if the episode was going to piss me off um that which I, the answer was most often yes yes <laughs> i was worried that it was going to come out in my writing and that there was going to get, I was going to get fandom backlash for it away from Rough Trade. Because I know I'm not going to get it on Rough Trade, but I was worried about I was going to get it elsewhere. Um, and I just didn't want to deal with it. So I had already gotten that, you know, veiled or you're racist email from somebody, you know, because I'd had Deaton be the, be and he wasn't even the antagonist in the story, but he was an, he was antagonistic in the story. In the, in the story I put in January, I wrote in January. The dark road um and so the whole the fact that 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 the chimney stands are using the you know anybody who doesn't like chimney is a racist thing on if i really, ever got that email i would just res, i would just respond with a link to the definition of racism and that would be it the problem is yeah yeah oh i got a big old long thing you know and actually kira got got roped in as being complicit in this which the funny thing is kira has not ever written any teen wolf um and the only well i never published any teen wolf well, but yeah, i thought yeah. dayton was an old white dude but all a scooby-doo so i know that but it doesn't would it would if you had known he was a black guy young black man would it have changed your perception of his actions no because he's a dick but so it doesn't really matter that's my point it doesn't matter um but the only character we have in common that we tend to write as an antagonist not a villain but antagonist is nick fury 
Oh, I remember this email now. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Now but I get issue, it. We went issue, through our whole websites looking for shit because we were like, right, what? We did. But the issue is, is that Nick, Nick well, Nick Fury, I, I'd never written Nick Fury as a villain. The issue is, is that, and then she accused me of like, anytime there was a black person in the story, she knew that they were going to be the villain in my story, which was which just, is, it was just shocking to me. But, overwhelmingly inaccurate. But the thing about it was that Nick Fury functioned in an antagonistic role to almost everybody in canon yeah that's not a dynamic that i made up now i leverage it pretty heavily in some some stories more than others but he's antagonistic to everybody so i guess why that's why i don't write him as a villain he does the either the wrong thing for the right reasons or the wrong thing for the right or the right things for the wrong reasons. I don't know what his jam is, but he's legitimately I trying. thought that I wrote him just having his canon relationship with Tony. <laughs> I did too. And he's pretty, particularly more so than anybody else, he's pretty antagonistic with Tony Stark. Um, it, it's almost it, like he can't stand that he needs him. Right. If your main character is Tony Stark, I don't know how you write Nick Fury as anything but an antagonist. Maybe not the antagonist, but an antagonist. Nick Fury is not really part of Tony Stark's warm and supportive support structure. So No, and he wouldn't want to be. So we had distilled it down to it had to be one of two characters she was talking about, either Alan Deaton or Nick Fury. I have written, I think in one story, I have written Deaton as an out-and-out villain. Um, But so we concluded that she had to be talking about Deaton. Um, and the story I had most recently published was The Dark Road. But Deaton is barely... The, the antagonist, the antagonist, the main antagonist in that story is Laura. Who's a white girl, for those who, you know, weren't paying attention. Hello, email person. <laughs> um, Deaton just kind of... He died from magical backlash in that because he wasn't doing his fucking job as the... Um, and that's canon, right? Um, it's really not clear what the fuck he was doing as the emissary for the Hail Pack. It's canon that he was their emissary. It is canon that the the Nemeton was cut down and was diseased under his watch. It is canon that the Hail Pack died under his watch. He's clearly not very good at what he does. So. I mean, he didn't do his job. Magic kicked his ass. That's just the way that works. Um, I only have one character of color um, that I've written with is at any level and to as then a, a problem and that's Nick Fury. That's it. I can't think of another. Because honestly, in most of my stories, there's a uh, well for me, I have another that does function in an antagonistic role, but he functions in an antagonistic role again in canon, and that is Leon Vance. Um, but I don't. I don't think I've ever made Vance a villain. But he d- does. To me, he's antagonistic towards Denozo and Cannon. Vance is problematic because he's guilty of fraud. Yes, a fraud on such a level that hundreds of people who've gone to jail for murder could get out on technicalities. So please don't tell me that he's a good man because he's not. Um, there is that one chick that the China, the, the representative of China. In my um, in my patient zero fic, Shen, but she's a hussy in canon. But again, I, we're using characters that canonically are problematic. I'm not inventing characters. So well, anyway. you know, I got accused of misogyny for the same reason because I wrote Sarah and Amanda's relationship as it was presented in canon. Yeah, 
So the thing is, I think when it came to this whole, what was I going to do about chimney when I wrote my rough trade is that was like rattling around in the back of my brain, right? This thing that happened back in like, I think it was February. Um, this person basically thinly veiled accusations of racism in my writing, writing and <laughs> whim of a madman. Um, but, um, and I didn't want to go, I just didn't want to deal with it again. And so that was, that was, and I didn't want to admit that that was that fandom pressure and that the weapon fandom was choosing to employ to bully people was affecting my decision about how I approached the story, but it was. And honestly, once I realized that, that, that their wep their, their, the weapons these bullies had chosen to get their way was what was influencing me more than anything else. That helped me decide what I was going to do. Cause I'm not going to let somebody bully me. I'm full of too much spite to ever bow down yeah. to that kind of thing. I am likely to kill a character. Y'all don't even, I, I will because I'm, mm -mm, I'm not here for it. But the thing is it took me, I did have to realize it for me to, you know, cause I was like, I was going to kind of go out. I, I still am trying to be relatively neutral on the character, but I was just going to kind of like keep him off screen entirely for the whole story so that I could, be which is valid. It's valid. Right. I was going to be flat out neutral on him. Just keep him off screen. And I was like, no, I'm going to write what's in the best interests of the story. And I honestly don't think that Chimney would let Maddie get as upset as she, because he didn't in canon. Because in canon, every time she gets upset, he confronts Buck about it. So whatever. So that's the way I decided to go with what it felt like it was authentic to what the character would do, even if um, it won't take it well. I just don't care. Because I'm not going to let the weapon they choose to employ, which they picked that weapon very purposefully. And once I realized that I was letting myself be subconsciously influenced by their weapon of choice, I decided I wasn't going to, I was not going to go neutral as neutral. I wasn't going to write the character out of the story. Basically I was going to deal with his canon, his season one behavior. Now the story only, the story ends in season three. So there's no season five behavior to be had, but my head canon about the character has been altered and that's irrevocable at this point. And once you see a character do something like what he does in canon, it's difficult to get past. Um, interpersonal violence is a trigger for a lot of people. And I know a lot of people had problems with the, the street fighting with Eddie. Um, they found that violence off-putting. Um, and some of these same people were not put off by the violence that Chim did. Um, and what I would say about that is that every time Eddie entered one of those street fights, he was entering into a consensual agreement to be violent with with, with another person, even if it was illegal. And then they'll and then another point well, they'll try to equate the two as being the same, not the same for starters. Um, but aside from the consent issue, the issue was all, was always the, the legality and the the no holds barred aspect of the street fighting because nobody would have anything to say if Eddie was doing actual MMA on the side. Except that he could potentially get legitimately hurt and it could sideline him. So the fire department might have something to say about him doing MMA. Um, but it's just it's just not the same thing. I'm not talking to you. Um, I'm No, I, why do you keep going on? I mean, there's a difference between like, yeah, like an organized, arranged meeting of violence and assault. Yeah. There's a difference between a fight. There's a difference between a boxing match. and then there's Illegal between... or not. Right. There's a difference. There's a difference. And the problem with the street fighting is the lack of rules, which it's illegal because there's no safety rules. Right. And that's the problem right. with it. People can get seriously hurt. But other it than is that, dumb because Eddie could have ruined his career. Right. 
But other than that, it's a consensual fight. So nobody's being forced into those. <clears throat> which makes it completely different. But um, now people also like to compare what happened between Chim. And this I actually find really frustrating. They like to compare what happened between Chim and Buck with what happened between Carlos and TK. For those of you who don't watch Didn't Lone one of Star, them shove the other? What happened was Carlos was, I think, present when, or he came to tell TK that his father had been arrested. TK wanted Carlos to leave. Carlos was trying to hold him and calm him down. Mistake. A big mistake on both parts. TK should not have been pushing him. It was pushing, by the way. But Carlos should not have been trying to hold him and force him to be calm when he was upset. Both of them, and the thing is, the fact that Carlos was trying to restrain him was never brought up in any of the, oh my god, I can't believe um, TK pushed Carlos conversations. Because anyone... really, if someone was trying to restrain me, even if it was my husband, I would push at them. Yeah. And honestly, when you're upset, pushing away the person you're upset with is not the same thing as punching them in the eye. Or in any other part of your body. There's a difference between saying, get out of my space. And that if that's not being respected, you have the right to push somebody out of your space. You don't have the right to punch somebody in the face because they're you're pissed at them. And Judd got in between them and made Carlos leave because he saw that the situation was too charged and they weren't going to be able to talk. Um, <clears throat> the two of them talked it out later. Like responsible adults. But I... While I don't like to see any sort of aggression between romantic partners, honestly, as much as I'm very sensitive to domestic violence, that particular scene did not trigger me, except for all of the squawking that was going on about what TK did, but no comments about what was going on about the fact that Carlos was trying to physically restrain him when he got upset. Honestly, I think that's the most egregious part of the behavior. For, I mean, this is probably just personal to me. But I would rather be shoved than held down or held in place. I... <sighs> Carlos tried to touch him when TK was obviously upset. This is the way I recall the scene, but I haven't, I've only watched it. I th I've seen it twice, but I haven't seen it in a while. Is Carlos tried to t touch him and get close to him, and TK was obviously upset. And TK did that push away thing, like get away from me. And instead of backing off, Carlos tried to pull him in again, tried to restrain him, to keep him from fighting <sighs> him off big problem for me and the thing is i don't i feel like carlos was like please don't push me away and he was they both were reacting but you can't say that tk was wrong for pushing him away and not say that carlos was wrong for trying to hold on to him when he clearly wanted to be let go neither behavior is good together it was a recipe for something serious to get for it to get worse so it's good that judd interfered and got between them and said okay dudes separate corners um but I will say that the one time my husband tried to calm me down by holding me still, I came fucking unglued. Yeah, I would never tolerate that kind of thing. I, I mean, I got so upset, I blacked out. But that's, that's, that's psychological for me. It was a trigger that he didn't anticipate. Um, and he's never done it again. It, it wasn't like he was trying to like hold me hostage or anything. He was afraid I was going to drive somewhere. Um, it would have been better for him just to take my keys and walk away, which, you know, would have also infuriated me, but it wouldn't have been the same, you know? Um, so you never know what kind of psychological trigger somebody has. Even if you know their history, you don't know what's going to be a trigger for them in that respect. Um, I, 
just the idea of trying to somebody trying to hold me in place like that's a hell no to the fuck no yeah it was it was just to me it was like i was watching the scene going oh, no, no 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 and the thing is it was it went they both were emotional and to me when they talk about two people emotionally react act, reacting badly that was that scene forgivably reacting badly and, but Judd stepped in and said, you know, basically, Carlos, you got to go. This is his place to work. You don't belong here. He told you to leave. So you leave. And that's what happened. It ended it. They went to their separate corners. They talked it out later. They hugged it out. Basically, they made out. And because it's a very adult relationship, those two have. Um, but, yeah, Bryce, right. <laughs> people Bryce. will be. <laughs> Bryce got some issues. <laughs> He's I'm like, allowed. they cut their I... shoes out of the bed. <laughs> I get it, bro. I don't allow shoes in my house at all. So, I, you know, I get yeah, that. Yeah, I'm, I'm that person who'd be like, you can take yourself at the door. If you don't have footies, I have some footies you can have. They're in a little plastic bag. <laughs> I will get you some socks. I'll get you some, I'll get you some, some of those little grippy socks. You do not have to even slide on the floor. I do have um, a bag of grippy socks. <laughs> I use grippy socks for Pilates. I will, I will give you a clean pair. Um, but the, um, yeah, there are people who will, act like the buck and buck and chimney thing should just be forgiven the chimney stands they're all chimney stands that buck and chimney should just forgive and forget and hug it out and then act like that that thing between tk and carlos was that tk was an abusive dick to carlos for pushing him. the fact of the matter is is that chim hit buck so hard he could have put buck in the hospital yeah and the thing is those the bones around the eye because i actually thought when i saw the punch i thought he hit in the jaw but the, the, the it was clear from the bruising that it was around the eye um those bones is chim's a muscly guy for all that he's much smaller than buck those bones around the eye are not that hard to break with a good hit so um fractured orbital bones are not that difficult i don't actually think that he came away from that punch without a concussion even a minor one your brain's delicate, y'all. It doesn't take much. You can bang your head on the kitchen counter or kitchen cabinet and get a concussion. Getting punched in the face that that hard is a concussion is the likely result. So, Bryce, as we see TK shove Carlos back four times before Carlos restrains him. The thing is, TK was upset and he shoved Carlos back. Carlos should have backed off, not kept coming in. He shouldn't have had to shove him four times. No, he should have backed off. Yeah. You don't... But keep coming at somebody when they don't want you touching them and that becomes an issue of consent which is egregious in my mind you know if, if you don't want somebody in your space they need to get the fuck out of your space yeah. and no means so, no but people will be hypocrites about this and they will they will in the one they will have in the one breath have condemned tk for pushing carlos and talked about domestic violence in that relationship and how that relationship is ruined for them now and if that's the way they want to look at it fine i kind of rolled my eyes about that kerfuffle when it happened but then those same people will turn around and tell you that what chimney did to buck is understandable the same people because buck isn't um, chimney isn't fucking buck thank god ugh. um ugh, i just hurt myself <laughs> Sorry. I'm just saying that, that that that's the line they're drawing. Yeah. But it, it's like they're missing the fact that it's still interpersonal violence. Yeah. It's not it's not necessarily domestic violence in the sense that it's not between romantic partners, but interpersonal violence is abuse between family members is a big problem. So, you know, we have um I yeah, I remember that Carl because TK stopped shoving once Carlos was holding on to him, but he looked like he was about to combust. And he was saying, Let me go, let me go. That's the way I remember the scene. Is that not what happened, Bri? 
Because it was while I thought it was while Carlos was holding on to him and he was saying, Let me go, let me go. It's a profound when, violation of boundaries. That's that's when Judd stepped in and told him to get out. He's gonna wash it. Um but yeah, I mean a lot of this issue comes down to personal boundaries and um self-respect and respecting the members of your family. Um and honoring that covenant. There's a covenant in family. You don't hurt your family. And when someone does, when someone hurts a member of the family, it's like they've betrayed everybody, not just the person they hit. Because when Chimney hit Buck, he betrayed Buck, Maddie, his own brother, his daughter. Yeah. And apparently that's okay. It's not okay. So that, that did go the way I remembered as Carlos did say to him, he's telling him to listen and calm down. TK says, you need to let me go. And TK was furious. So... Um, and TK is quite a bit, it's our, he, he's quite a bit smaller than Carlos, if I remember correctly. But anyway, that's kind of all irrelevant. Um, but yeah, these same people who will be all up at, up in that, that what Chimney did was understandable will be calling, um, TK an abuser for pushing Carlos after Carlos came to say, Hey, my dad arrested your dad for serial murder. <laughs> is that what it's for? Yes. <laughs> understand him being a little upset so your dad's the head of elector of texas <laughs> and the thing is and the thing is tk carlos was always the wrong person to deliver that piece of news he should not have been delivering that news no um, no uh to tk um we've arrested your father but whatever um in any case um there's more to what's going on in your own head um than when it comes to these characters and how to write them than just how I see the character and what fits in my story there it, fandom pressure cannot be excluded as a factor. And so I really think that if you're struggling with this, you really have to sit and parse it out in your own head, figure out how you feel, talk to somebody, um, make sure you've gotten down to the root of all of all of what's going on with you so that you can make if a decision that is based upon the kind of story you want to write, the kind of writer you want to be, and it is, it is fine to just let go and write something that's really bitter and get it out of your system. Um, but if you don't want to do that in whatever project you already had going, just set it aside and do something else. Write, write your little bitter thing. You don't even necessarily have to share it with anybody. I can see someone smaller shoving someone bigger out of their space. I'm, small, I'm, I'm five foot three. Um, my husband is significantly taller. And if he's in my space and I need space and he won't give it to me. I'm going to put both my hands on that man's chest and tell him he needs to take, he needs to, take the fuck, he needs to step back. You're in my space. Cause it can be overwhelming to have someone bigger, taller than you in your space when you're upset. Mm -hmm. And the more upset you are, the more overwhelming it becomes. So I see that mindset. I don't think any of it was appropriate, but I see how it no. happened. I totally can understand how it happened. And this is where I think that it's one of those things where the language inappropriate but understandable makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't have happened. It's inappropriate, but it's understandable how it occurred on both sides. Carlos just really wants to be there for his boyfriend. He thinks he should be responsible and deliver the news himself. All bad choices. He sees his boyfriend mm -hmm. getting upset. He wants to hold him. His boyfriend who's smaller than him. Bad choice. Um, TK should not have been shoving. You know, I mean, it's just... it. A bad choices, but it's also all 
understandable from a human perspective. And I understand also, I mean, I'm 5'10". I've never, I'm rarely in that situation of where even with somebody, one person is bigger than me, I'm rarely physically intimidated. But I worked in this company for a while where I was not just the smallest person in the company, but the smallest person by a lot. It was all guys and the shortest guy in the company. And there's like seven of them to start, I think, were six foot four. The tallest was six foot seven. So there's not much of a difference height-wise between the two of them, but one of them is more muscular, right? Those two guys on um, 911 Lone Star? Yeah. I mean, honestly, not- when you're in an emotional hot place, even a couple of inches can be overwhelming. Like, like Even if you're like sitting down and someone is looming over you, it can be outrageously impossible to deal with. Yeah. So it's about perspective. So I, Ronan Rubinstein comes across much he comes across to me smaller than rafael silva so um it's not just about height but maybe that's not the case and that's not true um but um yeah i know i mean as somebody who's usually not intimidated by anybody based upon size when you've got a bunch of people who are much larger than you when you're fielding like your own basketball team in your company and they're all looming over you there is this inclination to just put your hands up and out and go everybody back the fuck off right now I need six feet of personal space. I needed it before the panorama. <laughs> right? I need more. I always required six feet of personal space in every single than... direction of my body. That's right. I need enough space for all of you <laughs> to lay down in. That's right. That's right, you Mr. Six Foot Seven. There needs to be there needs to be your height difference between us. Can I have a car links, please? <laughs> he does look bigger. Yeah. He's yeah. Little, he comes across as a little lot bigger. So um, but again, it's about perspective because even if he wasn't significantly bigger, like like muscular or height wise, when you're in an emotional position, it's really easy to get overwhelmed, and your perspective gets skewed, and everything seems overwhelmingly huge and big and terrible and horrible. And how am I going to survive this? You know, and that's the mindset you get into. Here's the thing about the scene between Chim and Buck, which I did finally watch. There are moments where Chim looks completely unhinged throughout that episode. Like, I saw, like, little scenes on YouTube. Um, I mean, at one point, he's even, like, speculating that Doug took Maddie. Doug's dead. Doug's been dead. They're clearly painting him as a man who lost complete control of himself. Right? So, okay. So, say you buy that narrative. And he lashed out in violence. Say you buy that narrative. And you say, okay, I, I see how he got there. Even if you understand how he got there, absolutely nothing excuses his behavior. You could have a reason that's not an excuse. And they're going to gloss over it like it didn't happen. And that's the problem. Worst part it's, not going to be, it, it's not going to be acknowledged that it was wrong. Buck's going to be expected to apologize because he upset Chim so much that Chim hit him and didn't confess the secret that he'd sworn to his sister that he would keep. On the other side of it, if Buck had revealed Maddie's secret immediately, eventually it would come back on to him how he betrayed Maddie. So there was no for Buck in this situation. Now, the most obvious way to absolve, not absolve, but to have some resolution and closure for this issue is that Chim apologizes profusely and sincerely for what he did. Number one, he acknowledges he 
hit Buck. That he struck him. He struck a member of his own family. He seeks counseling. He stays in counseling for anger management. Period. It becomes a part of his everyday fucking life. And he never, ever, under any circumstances, offers any excuse for the behavior. It's, did you hit Buck? Yes, I did. It's not, did you hit Buck? Yes, but he pissed me off. There's no but. As for Maddie's response, the only healthy response she has is to leave him. If she wasn't a woman who'd been in a domestic violence situation, I can see her trying to manage him and put him in anger management therapy and trying to work him through these, these issues. But because, and I don't think it'd be healthy, but I could see that. I can see it happening. We see that happening in everyday life. I have a cousin who did that for her husband who had gotten a fist fight at work and she stood by her man like a champ and it was not a great situation at all. Because um, he, he did eventually get violent in other areas. But I don't see a circumstance where she stays with a man who lost control and hit somebody. Because she lived with that for, what, a decade? Yeah, honestly, I don't think they realize is that her staying, her her finding out and staying with Chimney implies that she's not as, in my opinion, as emotionally and mentally recovered from her relationship with Doug as they want us to believe. I thought when this started, especially after that thing where I thought one of the actors was being written off the show. I'm left to, I thought it either it was going to be Kenneth Cho, was that his name? Cho? Kenneth Cho? Choi. 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 Kenneth Choi was leaving the show or that Jennifer Love Hewitt wasn't coming back from maternity leave. Oh, honey, that's so horrible. I, yeah. I think, I think, so I think Jennifer I'm Love so Hewitt um, is coming back. But I, I had heard, I'd heard that when they started filming this season, that Kenneth Choi was still in contract negotiations. Um, so it could have been, they just wrote him out of a few episodes. I don't know. I mean, but what they've done is gross. What they could have done is if they didn't, they weren't certain he was going to be in these episodes and they knew that she wasn't because she's on maternity leave, they could have been like, okay, her postpartum depression got really bad. He's taking time off to take care of her, the kid and she's in inpatient care. And that way it would have, we wouldn't have had all this ugly stuff. Yeah. Was the character of Michael written off the show? He's at least temporarily. You mean, you mean in, Michael, yeah, he's at least temporarily written off. But he hasn't been written off in a bad way. He's going off to, was it Haiti with David? They're going to get married and go, yeah, they're going to get, but he, um, he uh, refused to follow the, the vaccine mandate. He tried to get exemptions twice and parent company refused to, they felt he didn't qualify for the exemptions he was applying for. And so he put out a statement that he, something about he's a father first and a man of faith or something like that. I don't know. His statement was, but yeah, his statement was odd, but he refused to, the, they had a deadline for all cast members um, of a certain tier. If, if you work directly with anybody working on set, you had to be vaccinated by a certain date. He didn't meet the deadline. So he was I have some really vicious opinions about anti-vaxxers. <laughs> but speaking of that little girl who played the sister in Black Panther, because yeah. she's not allowed in the United States because she's an anti-vaxxer and didn't get vaccinated. They've kind of reworked Black Panther 2. Did you hear? No. 
that our boy Winston's going to be the new Black Panther. Is he? Yes. Oh my, my, hus my husband told me, and he said, "You got. You, it's like you got stars in your eyes." Woman, shut up. <laughs> it's not stars. It's hearts. <laughs> Said, Maybe even tentacles. I think my ovaries are going to explode. He said, "You're ridiculous." <laughs> <coughs> Black Panther. Oh my god. Oh god. So apparently, she was going to be like the Black Panther briefly, and then would pass the reins on to him. But because she's not available for filming, they've kind of reworked it and apparently he's the new one i don't know how confirmed it is but it was confirmed as my husband was like kind of irritated and i was like i'm gonna be in line to buy tickets the day it comes on sale <laughs> I'm gonna, what I, I i will pay for streaming i there's no way you're gonna get me in a movie theater because you know, you know the minute those lights come off people are taking their masks off and i just ain't doing it well um, that's why i'm gonna get I, that's why i got that new fancy mask <laughs> oh true yeah you do have a fancy mask but you know, the thing is, is that when, the way they wrote Michael off is that they've opened it. They could, it's, he's not dead and he didn't leave in a bad way. So the character could come back to, um, if he gets the character, Michael could come back if, if, well, if the pandemic ends, it could come back if he decides to get vaccinated, the actor gets vaccinated. Um, they could recast and bring a different actor in, in that role. Um, or he, he could survive on through text messages. But he's not gone in, a, in an unfortunate way. Okay. If Jennifer Love Hewitt or um, Kenneth Choi were to leave the show at this point, it would be them gone in an unfortunate way. Um, I mean, that was just about what I thought was going to happen when I saw that spiraling in fandom. I was like, okay, one of them's not coming back. I was, that was just what I thought. Because they are, they've completely butchered the character of Chimney as far as I'm concerned. And they're also laying waste to most of the cast in, in uh, as well. So those of you who are having these problems can be like me. I only intend to write in the first two seasons of 911. <laughs> I think you mean first three seasons. You ignore season one. Your first, se first two seasons for you are seasons two and season three. Okay. <laughs> that works too. Although I would, I would write season one. I just haven't yet because Eddie... <laughs> No, you could find a way to get Eddie there sooner. I, I could, I could. Actually, he, I honestly, it's my headcanon that he was probably already in L.A. He just wasn't working. As, he just went, hadn't gone to just, the Academy yet. Well, it seemed like he waited a whole year before he went to L.A. after. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Um, it seemed like he waited a full year before he went to L.A. To <laughs> I'm so fucking excited. Oh, my God. Oh. I can't stand myself. Winston Duke is one sexy motherfucker. I want to climb him like a tree. <laughs> is is he on? Is he on your your? You got a pass list? <laughs> yeah, he's number one. My husband tried to veto. <laughs> he's like because when we went to see Black Panther in the theater, you know, when he's on his throne, like like that picture right there. I went, oh god, <laughs> and he elbowed me. <laughs> But I wasn't the only woman in the theater who had their ovaries combusting. Oh my, clinch, vagina clenching. It was awful, but great and amazing at the same time. I don't know what it is about him, but Winston Duke has got it going on, y'all. That movie was filled with almost too much pretty to be able to function because it also had uh, the actress who plays Akoya and blanking on her name. She's oh. fucking hot as hell. Oh. 
Between Vincent Duke God, and her, God, I mean, it was just God, like, God, it would be great if those two got together in, in, in the new movie. It would, because her man turned out to be a real dick face. So she had, she had to arrest his ass and put him in jail. She needs she, a new she, one. She, she I think Mbaku could be the one. <laughs> she could, he could. So I think it's painful. Is this? I we could we could go on this question forever because it's really difficult for. Um, the, the last part of shout out the question was, is AU again always your best bet? I don't know that it's always your best bet, but it is always an option. A, going going hardcore AU is always an option. Um, but let's, should we, uh, should we look through the questions and see if there's one that we um, have time Right, if that... you have an inhaler, are you using your inhaler right now? I think you probably should. Because one of the things that I have a problem with when my asthma gets bad is I get hiccups. Just, you know, something to think about. Um, you want to go to the next question? Well, let's see if, we've, if let's see if that's one we can answer in a relatively short. Um, it's a vague kind of question, but I think that we could probably deal with this. Probably one of the. You mean at least? <coughs> it's it is it is it, it could be long, but we could also be we could also be short. I'm just looking at the others. Hold on, uh, the next one I think could be short. Actually, I think all of them are short except the last one. Yeah, of course, it's asking for. A quite a lot <laughs> which that's we a whole do, podcast actually which we can do but that is a different writer's table let's start with ellie's okay when you are writing a hot mess i don't know what you're talking about ellie um and you know it's going to be a hot mess do you just power through it and fix it later or do you stop and make yourself rethink your life choices um it depends on the nature of the hot mess because if i'm writing myself into a plot hole there's no way i'm going to power through that um if if my hot mess... Oh, Jesus, Ty. My heart just stopped. Um, if the hot mess that I am creating is like I've got like a little bit of characterization inconsistency or I know I've got like... Like there's all... Sometimes there's these consistency things. Like sometimes I'm like just writing like in rough trade and I'm like making notes about things I need to fix or things I need to address or things I should have followed up on already. And like my list is getting longer and longer and longer and it feels like my editing or my... my not my editing, my first my first draft, my rewrite is going to be a bitch because it's so huge. As long as there's nothing that is a major plot inconsistency, I usually will keep going in that kind of circumstance. It depends upon what my momentum is. If, however, I'm thinking I've got a major continuity error or something. The thing is, if I'm not stumbling, if I'm if I've got this hot mess going on, but I'm able to keep going and I'm like so in the groove that I don't want to stop, I keep going. But a lot of times if it's truly a hot mess, I can't keep going. So it really depends upon the nature of the hot mess. But I have had stories that were flowing so well that it didn't matter how big my my rewrite list was getting. I just kept going because it was just moving. It was like, I got to get through this. It was like, it was almost like I was being like driven to get through it it's like that creative momentum was a beast and i was just going to write it as long as i could and there's nothing wrong with that but sometimes you got to stop and you just go this is a problem this is this i can't i can't go out go on until i figure out where i'm going um let me try to i'm looking at my work so i can figure out an example of where i stopped and where i kept going sometimes i have to consult my list because my memory is shit i've powered through hot messes on rough trade yeah. um but when it comes to like stuff I'm working on in private, if it becomes too much of an issue, 
I will put that shit in a folder call. I'll think about it later and think about it never. I mean, honestly, because I have a whole bunch of shit in that folder that I've, I've not looked at in a decade. Um, literally. Uh, so it's like, okay, how big of a hot mess is it? Because I personally thought when I was riding Eye of the Tiger that it was a just big, giant, awful fucking hot mess. But that was not my product. That was my mindset. I was just not in a good place. I was struggling. Um, it just wasn't working and it didn't make any sense because it was my OTP. Why am I having this fucking problem? Um, and it was about me, not the work. Because the work is fine. It's not the best thing I've ever written, but it's not awful either. It's just what it is. It's just a story. Um, it isn't one that will stick out for me like intellectually thinking, oh, that was really great. I really enjoyed writing that because I didn't. Um, but it's not the hot mess I thought it was. Um, patient zero, same thing. I violated my OTP thinking I could do that. I could not. I did it, but it was, I suffered. I won't do it again. Lesson learned. I'm trying to think of a hot mess that I abandoned and then picked back up and fixed. Have you found one? Um, well, the, the story I abandoned and picked back up and finished is one of my EADs, React, which is my Come to Jesus series. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed that. That was a lot more, but that was, again, a lot more a hot mess in my mind. Once mm-hmm. I reread it and I realized the, that the obstacle was an obstacle of my own making, I just was like, oh, I just need to put a couple of scenes on it and this first story is finished. because That was that pairing I, thing, right? Right. It's because I had in my head that it was, I was going to be able to put Tony Dinozo and Chris Argent together and that was just never going to happen. Um, never in terms of when I, there was one time, and I'll give, I can give you one example of where I stopped for a couple of days during Rough Trade and replotted. And that was a Leo Moto. Um, <laughs> that's one giant ass complicated story to replot on. <laughs> let me I'm tell you. Oh let me my tell God, you. I'd have been in tears. Let me tell you what happened. I thought when I had <coughs> intended, when I had intended, what the story I had intended to tell in a Leo Moto was the story that would have come when I when I'd signed up for a Friday. The story was intended. Night Hail was the story after what a Leo Moto actually was. I thought I was going to cram everything that was in a Leo Moto into the prologue and it'd be like some gloss over of how tom riddle was you know severus snape traveled in the time in the past and and then i wrote the prologue and i realized like i don't know like a thousand words into the prologue that i was telling the wrong story in rough trade Mm. and i wrote the prologue differently than i had intended i wrote it as severus's time travel vehicle instead and i realized the story i needed to actually tell was severus's journey to becoming thomas's father not after the fact so the thing is i had all the details of everything that happened written for my reference purposes but i didn't have them written down for a plot so i had to stop and plot the story that i actually wound up telling so i spent the whole month stressed out because I wrote, plotted that story in like two days and then felt like I was writing a hot mess the whole month because it was so off plan. But I felt like I'd made a tactical error in my planning when I decided to, to, to skip all of those details and not tell that part of the story. And then once I wrote the prologue, I realized I'd made the mistake in the nature of where I planned to do my time skip. And I was like, I, I, I need to tell the story of how he becomes a father and tell that story not 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 years down the road so 
like I said, I had I had written down all the details, so I knew what the details were because I needed them in my own head for the story that was to come. But I didn't actually have that story plotted, the story I told plotted. So I stopped. I told this, I plotted the story, and then that's the story I wrote. So I spent the whole month feeling behind the eight ball. I spent the whole month feeling like off balance. I, it was, it was weird. Um, in that particular case, there's no way I could have just like powered through without stopping to fix myself because I couldn't have just gone. Okay, no, because it would have been too much like pantsing for me, right? It had been like, here, I've got this, I've got this basically what amounts to a timeline and biographical details and write a story from that. Uh-uh. Um, so if I hadn't fixed that hot mess, stopped to fix that hot mess, to me, that was like, it was, that wasn't like a little stumbling block. That was like running into a cliff, um, like falling off a cliff. I had to, I had to stop, like hard stop. And so like, usually I don't just like stall out on rough trade for like post the first part on the first day and then stall out for several days and vanish. And everybody's like, where the hell did she go? Um, I was off plotting a story. <laughs> That's what I was doing. Um, and then when I reread it later, I was like, oh, that came out better than I expected because I spent the whole month stressed out because I felt like, what the fuck did I do? And it was all, a lot of my stress was in my head, not in on the page because I was so off of what my original plan had been. So that was a case of where I had to stop. There was just no powering through with a timeline and biographical details. I needed for my, for myself, I needed an actual plot document. To, but there are times when... I feel like I'm in a hot mess kind of state and I'm just kind of like, whatever, I'm just going to go with it. I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep going. Um, the story I was thinking that fit that descriptor of where I was just kind of like plowing through, even though I had some issues as I was going was de novo, actually. Um, I, my, my first rewrite on that, I had a lot of changes to make, um, but um, not in a bad way. It just, I just kind of was plowing through on that story, even when I was hitting stumbling blocks, because I've had a lot of momentum on it. Um, and when I would hit little stumbling blocks, I'm like, I don't, I don't care. 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 Because there were some things I hadn't, like, figured out ahead of time. Um, like, I hadn't actually synced up the timeline between, um, when I first started writing the story, between... Um, Criminal Minds and NCIS. And so when I got to the scene where I'm like, he's going to go to NCIS to go, to, go to, the, to the FBI, I was like, I need to check the timeline and figure out which char- characters it is. And I thought for oh, sure no. in, my, in my head it had been Rossi. In my head, <laughs> I thought for sure Rossi was there. I was wrong. It was Gideon. And I was like, shit. So in my head, I had been planning this scene, scenes between Rossi and Tony Denozo, not between Gideon and Denozo. And I was like, well, this just changed, but instead okay, a of a whole like, different animal. Yeah, it really is different. So instead of stopping to kind of like tweak it or anything, or re- sort myself out, I just decided to go with it and see how the scenes felt when I wrote them with Gideon in them, and they came out fine. But I didn't like. I decided not to stop. I decided to just ride the momentum. You know, I was like, well, I didn't plan this very well, but I'm gonna just go ahead and keep writing. Um, so that's kind of the two extremes. Of where one time I had to hardcore stop and sort myself out, and the other time I just kind of kept going and decided to see how, how it went and fix it later if it didn't go well. For me, most of the time I have this crisis in zero draft because my zero drafts is our our mixture of plot events and GMC. Um, normally, I have this this 
like I said, in zero draft. But there have been occasions where I got to the point where I'm ready to write and my zero draft was like, not where I thought it was. Like, for instance, I <laughs> had to remove 20 plot points, basically, from the front half of Only Time because I was basically writing curtain fic. It didn't even make any damn sense because they were going to be time traveling, obviously. So all this little domestic shit happening in their home was for nothing. Absolutely for nothing. It served no purpose whatsoever. Except perhaps to illustrate just how much they were losing. Right? <laughs> just, just, it, just, just dig just the knife dig, in, Kara just Marie. Just dig, dig the in. knife in. But it's because it ended so, the, because Soul Magic ended so roughly, so violently. I I wrote those zero drafts practically back to back. So it was like, I need a breather from what happened in Soul Magic. <laughs> so that happened. And I ended up actually replotting only time. Um, and focusing a little more on the political and legal shenanigans um, that are going to take place in Britain um, over uh, the hunt for the Horcruxes and, you know, Voldemort. Fuck him. Um, because, honestly, I'm tired of killing Horcruxes. It's just, just kind of be like, something oh, else. Like, not another Fucking Horcrux horcruxes. hunt. I can't deal with another Horcrux son. I just don't want to. Uh, I, I'm, I'm with Harry. Oh, come on. No, I've done this. <laughs> right? I've done this already. That was me talking. But it's like, so I did some replotting. Um, I think I'm going to have a lot of fun with it once I get in it. Um, in this next chapter coming up, they're in they're in Rome. They've, they're doing their testing and stuff. Um, in the next chapter after that, they'll be back in Britain. Um, so it'll be, you know, it'll be a whole new ball game. And we're gonna have we're gonna have a ritual marriage and some magical gift sharing. I did that in Dr. Lowell. It was a lot of fun. I'm gonna do it again with the parcel magic. Um, and we're gonna wake up um, the other version of Anwen. Um, so that'll be fun. Um, so yeah, it's, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Lots of shenanigans and political stuff and some trials and some double door bashing because I can't help myself. <laughs> He's a problem. He's a problem in every universe. Uh, he's a real problem in this one because he's actually, you know, even in Canada, I think he was more of an obstacle during the war than he was any kind of help. Yeah, I agree. Well, that whole notion of he needs to control fate is just the next level bullshit. <laughs> Shadow, someone has already written that. And I can't tell you the name, but I'm sure someone will help you find it. There is actually a fic where Harry and Hermione are sitting in Hogwarts and she turns to him and one of them like suggests they go to the room of the, re the room of requirement. And Harry's like, why? She says, well, you require the Horcruxes, right? So they trot their asses to the room of requirement and the room of requirement harvests all the Horcruxes and gives them to Harry. <laughs> okay. Then. <laughs> then they go down into the chamber and kill them with Basil's venom. Done deal. <laughs> I don't remember all the details. But <clears throat> I remember the requirement basically sucking all the Horcruxes into the room. It's actually my headcanon that in the magical world, anytime somebody puts something away for safekeeping and they forget about it, it ends up in the room of requirement. That basically Hogwarts is a, is a thief. <laughs> I don't know, Bri. I don't think so. 
I mean, it's definitely crack. That thick. It was great, though. <coughs> I also read once where Harry Potter goes outside, sticks his wand up in the air, <laughs> and some that, some... <laughs> that sounded corny. How <laughs> uh, you say that? Somebody spell SEO? Yeah, I think SEO. so. I don't... SEO Horcruxes. <laughs> and they all come <laughs> flipping. <laughs> I, for the life of me, I can't figure out why they didn't summon fish from that river. Why'd they only have one fish? Because they're not very imaginative. <laughs> they're not very magical. <laughs> That's that too. <clears throat> Anyways, it's like J.K. Rowling forgot they could do magic about halfway through the Deathly Hallows. Wait, about a third of the way through the Deathly Hallows. Um, it's like, oh, that's right. This is a magical world. I think the room of requirement exists in dimensional pockets. So it creates a pocket for each thing that you need it to do. So the Horcrux itself was in a different pocket than the pocket that the kids were in doing the magic that they were doing. Personally. Actually, my headcanon for the, for the requirement. I'll accept this headcanon. Nothing else makes sense, really, to me. I mean, I've been thinking, I, I thought about it a lot once, because otherwise there would be some kind of leakage. Leakage? Like stuff from the room of hidden things would end up in like the dueling room or whatever. It would just kind of fall out or something. I don't know. Leakage. That's what I said. Leakage. That's what she said. She's not taking it back. <laughs> I mean it. Leakage. <laughs> seepage. Yeah, seepage is not any better than leakage. But speaking of words that make you think things that you shouldn't be thinking. Okay, so my husband comes in the house and says, I need to trim the bushes. Now, let me tell you a story about this. It's a deeply personal choice. <laughs> It isn't even about that, though. That would be funnier. Okay. Okay. Wait. Bright. It's hilarious. Okay. There's this movie called My Cousin Vinny. And in this movie, there is this man who's testifying in court about something he saw. And Vinny, played by, what's his name? D no. Joe Pesci. Joe, Joe Pesci. Pesci um, is asking him about these obstacles that he's managed to see through to see this crime which actually turned out to be impossible there's no way he could have actually seen it he just thought he just thought he did um and he's like and what's this thing right here and he goes that's a bush and he goes how many of these little objects are there there are seven bushes <laughs> seven bushes seven bushes so whenever somebody says bushes, I automatically think in my head, seven bushes. And so I said it, and my husband, I thought he was going to have a coronary. He said, you got to stop. I was like, isn't that what you think? Because <laughs> it's like permanently in my head. Seven bushes. And he counts <laughs> one, two, three, five, seven bushes. Seven bushes. And he's so happy that he got it right. Seven goes, bushes. uh-uh. What about that one and that one? Like <laughs> uh, he didn't get it right. Seven bushes. Anyways, that, that shit cracks me up. Uh, <clears throat> to this day, it cracks me up. I don't know how we got there, but we got there. We don't know how we get. We don't know how we got to Seven Bushes. My cousin Vinny's a great movie. You should definitely watch it. Yeah. It's, um. Okay. So I think we answered. Did we? Did we answer the hot mess question sufficiently? I think you just have to make a choice. Really, <clears throat> either if you can fix it, and you gotta be honest with yourself. Really, um, if it's is it fixable? keep writing. But if it's not fixable, you need to acknowledge that it's not fixable and set it aside. Don't throw it away. Don't delete it. Just set it aside until you're in a good headspace to look at it objectively to see what you can salvage from it. Yeah. 
And, you know, and the thing is, there's nothing, the other question is, is when it, when it comes to powering on, is are you of the, the temperament and the mindset that can just push through a hot mess and let it be a hot mess until you can get back to it? Not, not everybody can. It's like there's people who can skip a scene and go on to the next scene. If a scene's driving them crazy, they can just skip it and come back and write it later. Not everybody can just skip a scene and come back and write it later. I have a really hard time with that myself. I, I can do, do it, it but very, I hate it. I do it on very rare occasions, but it really drives me crazy. I can go back and edit a really terrible scene. Even change the POV if I have to. Um, but to it's outright to skip a scene is really difficult. I'm a very linear, linear writer. I also prefer to read that way. Yeah. So, you know, um, it's a matter of if, 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 if it's not going to drive you bonkers and it's not going to be catastrophic to the story and you don't mind the hot mess, by all means, keep going. But there are times when, if you've got a plot hole, you do not want to keep going. Okay. Do we have time for one more question? I'm game. Let's okay. I've probably drinking 64 ounces of water just sitting here. So this has come from a question who's a fan of SGA and SG1, and that's going to be relevant, the fandom that is causing this question. The science parts of the story freak me out, and I'm afraid it shows in my writing. I start second-guessing myself and worry that I'm either putting too much info or not enough info in. How do you get around this and know when enough is enough? Um, For me, I tend to focus on interpersonal relationships when I write Stargate. You might have noticed. Um, the science is few and far between. And when it is there, I tend to like, I probably should put a warning, like a, a Wikipedia science on it. Because I'm not actually a physicist. I actually, uh, I tend to warn people for comic book science when I'm writing in MU because I don't feel like I should be held to a higher standard than right? the canon. Um, and anybody who has a miniature fusion reactor in their chest, any any canon that has that um, um, is not, uh, th that's not science. That I, that's not a high bar that I have to live up to. I do think some some cases, I do think there's a little bit better science in some places in Stargate canon, but in other places, it's clearly dramatically, dramatically fictionalized, like ridiculously fictionalized. Um, so I, it's interesting, is there are times when I've seen people putting a lot of really real science into, um, in, in a way to the point that it almost contradicts canon. <laughs> like if the science was that real in the show the show wouldn't work right so that's one of the things you have to be careful is, is there's there can be a, and i i actually and i'll i'll take this to the level of the procedural there can be an, an inclination and i've done this sometimes to try to interject reality into the procedure of procedurals um the problem the thing is is that procedurals they the shows don't actually work if procedurals if the, if they were following procedures and if things went at the pace and the technology level that actually existed at the time, um, if DNA science in 2003 went the way that it was in NCIS and at the speed it was in NCIS, forensics would have looked a lot different back then. You know, you don't get day turnaround time on DNA in 2003. You don't get day turnaround time on DNA forensically now. No. Um, so I think one of the things that I, you have to bear in mind is even when you know a bit of the procedure or you know the science or you know the reality of a situation, is you've got to weigh that how much you interject um, into the story of reality. Because for starters, you don't want to come across 
like you're trying to educate your audience because that comes across preachy. Um, and I don't, I'm not saying that's your intention, but I have read stories like that. The funny thing is I've read Harry Potter stories that came across like that with the magic. It's like, are you really trying to educate me about magic? You do realize magic doesn't exist, right? Um, it's like, it's like they get too deep into their own headcanon and feel like they have to share every single detail. This isn't just about, you know, fantasy world building or using um, science fact and science fiction. Um, sometimes people just get so wrapped up in their own headcanon, they have to share every single piece of information they've developed, no matter like, how yes, like, fucking boring it is. It's like, I've developed this. I've, I've worked and developed this world. I'm going to share it all with you. Um, and you get no choice. So I think it's important with... For starters, my line with procedure, procedural fact or science fact is don't contradict the canon too much because that just that lies madness. You don't want to create ripples that you then have to uh, you don't want to create ripple problems, ripple consistencies of your own making and interjecting a whole bunch of science fact into science fiction can create negative ripples that you then have to correct, course correct. Um also, it could have the potential to be dull. Like, is this helping your story? And honestly, I would say the vast majority of SG stories I read don't have a ton of science in them. No. But really, honestly, the show didn't either. Yeah, it didn't. So when I, like, for instance, when I actually read a story once where it devolved into a lot of higher math talk, and I felt like the author was telling me that they're a mathematician. I thought that's what they were telling me. And I felt like I didn't need it. Like, is this information serving your story? And is it this That's serving your story? That's why it stuck out. It stuck out because it was a lot. It was like an in-depth discussion of higher math principles that took the story nowhere. And the funny thing is, um, even though my dad's PhD is in chemistry, his minor's in math. So I excerpted it from it and I said, "Is it sent it to us? Is this legit?" He wrote back and said, yeah, what are you reading? And I was like, I'm just curious if this is real math or made up math. He says, oh, it's all real. I'm like, it doesn't belong in this damn story. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You want to create, you want to build around your character realistic circumstances for the canon event. Um, and when you're constructing your scenes, your goal, anytime you give your reader information, is to further your plot or to further your characterization. And if the detail isn't doing either, it has no business being in your story. It becomes ego service for yourself. Like, oh, I looked up all this shit, so now I have to include it. Do you really? So, I mean, I don't say it to, and the thing is, sometimes a science in a show can be overwhelming. Somebody gave an interesting example of numbers. Um, Numbers, the math and numbers was highly relevant to the show and only relevant 90% of the time, 95% of the time to the solving of the cases. So I know a lot of people who said they wouldn't write numbers because they couldn't handle the math. Well, just don't write a case fic. And these are people who don't write case fic anyway, so I'm not sure what they were put off about. Right? <laughs> you can't write a mathematician not talking about math? Um Don had to do some cases that didn't involve Charlie. So it's like people got this obstacle in their mind about the show was about math and I don't know math, therefore I can't write in numbers. But Don had a whole team. He did probably multiple cases a week. He didn't run them all with Charlie. He didn't run them all on math. And I can write an entire novel of 
just Ian Edgerton tying Charlie up and specking his ass. There you go. You don't consensually. Need, you don't need <laughs> the math, right? You don't need to understand. And the thing is, sometimes you could actually apply math in a way that has you could just get it straight from a book that you don't you don't need to know anything about its application. So, like, let's say Ian wants to get Charlie out of his head. Goes, hey, Charlie, tell me something about this mathematical theory. And you could just have Charlie start spouting off about it. You could pull it straight from wiki page about that and then just had a ramble off and Ian's just letting him ramble about this math theory. You've interjected some real math. You didn't have to understand it. It has no bearing whatsoever on the case. But the thing is, I rarely write, I rarely write case fic. So yeah, I would be, intim I, I would be intimidated to try to write a case fic in numbers that was using Charlie as the main investigator. I would have a hard time with that because I can't, I don't understand math at that level. I wouldn't be able to pretend to understand math at that level. I couldn't fake that. But for starters, I don't write a lot I of I mean, those fic. writers on that show couldn't do it either. That's why they actually hired a mathematician. Several mathematicians. To do that shit for them because they could not do it. And those, they're better at math than probably most people, the Scott brothers. Um, so with... But people get this obstacle about, oh, it's math. I can't do that. But the thing is, I could I could have gone there, but I don't write case fic for the most part to begin with. But it when when I do insert an investigation into a story, I'm perfectly capable of writing an investigation that just involves Don and Charlie is at school teaching math. It doesn't have to be a math-focused investigation. So... People can get very wrapped up in the expectations of the fandom and think I'm writing in this, I'm the, I'm writing in um, the Martian. I need to understand how life on Mars works. Well, maybe you just need to understand how a potato grows. Maybe you don't need to understand how, you know, he's going to survive. Maybe you don't need to understand all the signs of everything up there. Maybe you just need to understand how a potato, how potato farming works, you know? Um yeah, I think a lot of a lot of SGs, a lot of science fiction based fandoms have very little actual science in them. Um, I would loosely call MCU a science fiction fandom. There's not an actual lot of science. There's almost none in the show or in the fan fiction. And I do. And the thing is, when I see writers try to insert a lot of science, it comes off weird. Because it is weird. Because there wasn't like, a whole lot in the show. <laughs> I'm like, why? Like when I read an MCU story that somebody's trying to rationalize the science, I'm like, why are you trying to rationalize the science in the MCU? I mean, they should have a warning for comic book science because the fucking stuff makes no sense. You've got infinity stones for fuck's sake. That apparently made the whole universe for fuck's sake. They've existed since the dawn of time and they were singularities. It's that apparently these cosmic entities made into little tiny rocks. Why you would do that and then weaponize them? Because that seems like something you should do with an all-powerful and an all-powerful singularity. That's like the ultimate weaponize fuck it, it moment. It's like, right? fuck it. Fuck it. So. Let's just see how it goes. My advice with, with, with any kind of procedure, procedural science, um, science fiction, is when in doubt, leave it out. <laughs> it's just like a comma. If you're not sure, don't put it in. And that's what I do when I have like a character, like let's say it's John's point of view and Rodney's off talking about physics. It's just as like John glazes over as Rodney starts to talk about, you know, theoretical physics again. You know, just Or fade to black when the science happens. It's sort of like a sex scene you don't want to write. <laughs> so we did have one more short question. We want to try to go ahead and get it in. Yeah. Um, our last short question 
we did have we did have an appreciative comment which i appreciate um someone did notice our serious serious writer's table podcast um <laughs> so the question is do you ever get frustrated with a story for making you tear up regularly like it if it makes sense like if it makes sense for the character and everything they've been through does it still frustrate you how would you balance that as an author like make it so that you aren't constantly tear jerking but still staying true to the emotional pain the character has dealt with um um I will say usually a lot, most, this isn't always true, but most of the time, if my story is making me tear up regularly, but like consistently the whole story, something's going on with me and it's not the story. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I'll give myself breaks though. I would like if, if I'm, yeah. you know, writing something really heavily angsty that I'm having to work through, get up, walk around, um, uh, write a fluffy one shot just to kind of clear my palate, so to speak. Yeah, so I think that one thing that it's important to figure out is it the story or is it something going on with you emotionally? Because sometimes you're crying at something that you're like, why am I crying at this? You know, um, because your character, because there's a lot of times I write my character going through something and I'm not necessarily reacting emotionally to it. And sometimes I'm reacting much more emotionally to what's going on with my character than my character is reacting to it. Um, and I would say that the better place to be from a writing perspective is I'm reacting <coughs> less emotionally than my characters reacting because there should be some level of compartmentalization between you and your character. Typically it doesn't always work. Sometimes you're so in your character's headset and mindset that you do need to get a break from it. Um, but compartmentalization is your friend. Uh, and I think it's really important that you not get too wrapped up. Otherwise what you're going on with your characters can start to affect your mood. You can start to get depressed. Um, and I've seen writers go through this, and I've been through it myself, where it it's too hard to separate myself out from my writing because it's because I'm not compartmentalizing enough between what my characters and myself. There's there's like a line there that's getting crossed. But sometimes, sometimes I'm just in a, an emotional place myself, and like every little emotional thing that crosses my character's path is causing me to get uh, upset. And that's fine. It's fine. But it's important to acknowledge that because sometimes what happens, and I don't, I'm not saying this has happened to anybody who's asked the question or who's in the chat room, but sometimes what happens is then that becomes a, like a closed system where I then write the character more emotional because I'm emotional. And then the more emotional I write them, the more, the more I react emotional to what's going on in this. And it's just, it's, it's the feedback loop is real. And then when I go back and reread it later, when I'm not emotional, I can't figure what the fuck I was thinking. Why is this character just like, you know, bleeding razor blades all over the page over what amounts to very little emotional stimulus? So that's an extreme example. But that can happen where you get into this emotional feedback loop where something happens that makes you upset you, you you react emotionally to what you've written you then write the character reacting more emotionally than perhaps the situation warrants then you get more upset and react more emotionally and then it just keeps snowballing now i'm not gonna say i'm not saying that's what happened but it's something to be aware of because i've seen that happen to people and the next thing you know and like literally i had a, this was years ago i was talking to an ncis writer um and they were going through this cycle with um, writing a character with, with a Tony Genosa story that I don't think, I don't know if they ever published it or not. I never followed up. But they basically were almost at the point from this emotional feedback loop they'd gotten themselves into because they 
needed to take a break from the story where Tony was almost to being committed inpatient in the mental health, you know, the mental health ward, the inpatient psychiatric unit in the hospital over something relatively wow. small, over something relatively small in Canon. We'll, we'll just, I'm going to, I'm going to pick a, like, like, let's say box 10. Okay. I'm going to pick a, pick an event that was the can't the fandom reacts negatively to but it was the way she was writing it he was getting upset she was getting upset she was writing him more upset she was getting more upset and it was just it was snowballing and the next thing you know she, he's suicidally depressed but it was and her I was, and i was like and i asked her i said is he depressed or are you depressed and she didn't have an answer at that point I said you need to take a break from this story because it is not good for your mental health right now now I don't know what the intent of the person who asked this question was necessarily, but I'm just talking about that sometimes you need, you can have a poor boundary in your own mind between you and your character. And so I mentioned that because of the mention of your story causing you to tear up. I have had story. I, I rarely write a story that has emotional content where I don't get a little misty at some point, but if my writing is making me cry a lot, that usually speaks more to something going on with me than the content of the story. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does because you know, but I'm the person who cried over a picture of Dumbo earlier this week. So, <clears throat> but you definitely, definitely needed to step back from some stuff. Cause <laughs> you was having a moment, but I mean, it's like when you, um, um, sent me that uh, wish baby story. I, I couldn't, you know, did I read Kira, Kira's wish baby story before she posted it. I was having a rough night. She said, I'm going to send you this story. She thought it was going to be cute, happy. Um, <laughs> and it was. When I reread it, when it was finished, it was great. <coughs> but dudes, when I read it that night, the first time I read it, sitting here on my couch and I'm reading it, and the Faye Bells, when the Faye Bells chimed, I started sobbing. Oh, God, honey, I'm so sorry. I was just, I was just I cannot trust to cheer anybody up. <laughs> Normally, but it, see, it would normally it would have been great. I don't know what was wrong with me that night, but it was bad. It was the thing is, I really enjoyed the story, but I was an emotional hot mess. And so I would not have been a good judge of is this if she if you know if Kira had said I'm I'm going to post this story tonight, I think it's going to make people happy. I'd have been like, no, <laughs> no, it's <laughs> I'm miserable. Oh my god. Um, I even but, told her that I thought the emotional content was flat. I had no idea she was over there crying like a big girl. <laughs> I was a big girl. So, um, so, so the, the other part of this question that I think is important is um, how do you balance it so that you're staying true to the emotional pain the characters dealt with um, without constantly tear jerking? Um, if you're constantly getting in that emotional state, that's something I think you have to figure out how to manage. Either give take a take a break. Um, Figure out if something's going on with you that's making you more emotional. So in the case of the Faye Bells thing, um, I think my period started the next day, right? Mm -hmm. And it was early. So I had no idea that I was, I was like a week early, I think. And I had no idea that PMS was on me hard. Um, and um, it, there was a clue. There was a clue. Me sobbing like that over something that was light and fluffy, basically, um, was a clue that something was off. Um it wouldn't have been a good time for me to be trusted with any kind of writing at that point. I think actually, I think Kira said to me, actually, don't write anything, go read something or go play a game or something because you really can't be trusted right now emotionally. Um, and sometimes that's the real thing that you cannot be trusted emotionally. Um, 
And maybe you should try it. Maybe that's the time to try to write some fluff or, but sometimes even the fluff is going to make you cry when you're in that state of mind. And sometimes even when you're in that kind of state of mind, even when you try to write fluff, it just comes off sad. But the part about how do you stay true to a character and what they've been through? Um, I think you can be, stay true to a character's circumstances without, especially if you're having a hard time with the emotional content yourself without falling into that hole with them. And that's part of the keeping the boundary between you and the character that's really important. And if you have to bring that, like we've talked about, like Kira and I, like we have different levels of our narrative. Like I write a deep point of view and Kira writes like typically a more, a higher, more um, almost bordering on objective sometimes point of view, but not quite. But she kind of writes a higher point of view than I do. But sometimes Kira also will get down deep into the point of view when she needs to. If I was struggling with, the character's life circumstances making it hard for me to write them in a way that was a lot keeping me from being able to remain objective about it i would try to bring my point of view up a little higher and not go so deep because the thing is when you go into a deep point of view with someone who's got a lot of trauma or a lot of pain that could be triggering for you as the writer and it could be very emotional so and you can you also might... end up inserting your own angst into your character yeah that too so you could try to bring your POV up a little bit, which is to try to skim the POV, not write it very deep, not, or not write it so deep, um, so that you're not deep down into the character's, you know. Because there's a difference between, it's sort of like the difference between, um, you know, imagine you're like sitting at the edge of a pond, and you've got your feet in the water, and you're telling the story of what the fish are doing in the water, okay? And you're kind of kicking it, and you're enjoying your summer day, and it feels good, right? There's a difference between that and climbing in the pond and experiencing the cycle of life with the fish that just got eaten by the bigger fish. But, you know, so it's a different perspective to like sit outside of it and look at it and tell the story versus climbing into the story and being down into that. Now you're wet and cold and miserable. And that's and sad and sad. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, oh, but now that fish got eaten. And I didn't even know that if I'd been up. Well, that's exactly the point. You wouldn't have known all these things if you just kind of written POV a little bit higher. And that's a perfectly valid thing to do. Now, that can be difficult for an author who is used to going down deep in the POV. But if you're making yourself miserable, it's time to bring your POV up a little bit. So I would have like several questions about the story, about what was going on with the author in this circumstance, which, like I said, I've, I've kind of went down a similar path with somebody around it, like an NCIS story. This was probably seven, eight years ago with her just being really depressed over the story that she was writing. And to her, it's this story. It seemed like it was coming very organically to her, exploring what she felt like was Denoso's trauma um, around an event. And his trauma was feeding her trauma and she was feeding it back to the character and it was this vicious cycle. And she was literally considering having him committed in the next part of her story because he was so depressed. Which is not really conducive to storytelling. Honestly. No, and it wasn't, she's like, I don't know how I got here and I'm miserable and this isn't the story I intended to tell. And I just, she felt like she was following the progression of the storyline as it made sense to her at the time. But I felt like she was actually following her own emotional progression more so than she had certainly over identified the character with, with herself or her own emotional state yeah so it, that's why i say i would have questions what is going on with you emotionally are you over identifying with this character when you're writing do you have good separation between yourself and the character if you don't you need to work on that 
Are you um, writing in first person? Stop that. Yeah, stop that right now. <laughs> um, it's it's really important to start looking at these kinds of questions when you are getting into an emotional spiral with a character and or with with your writing. Um, are you in a hormonal stage, you know, in your cycle? If you are, you might want to wait till your period's over or until you're on your period, whichever remedies things for you. Have you had a medication change that's affecting you negatively? Maybe you need to write a different story for a little while that has a less emotional content. Um, but some authors just really get in deep with their characters. And if they're not used to writing a deeply emotional or angsty story or a deeply emotional or angsty characters, that can be rough when they really try to get and channel that character in their head mindset. And I'm telling you, I think it's really important that you that me maintain good mental separation between you and the and a character. Because one thing to channel a character, it's another thing to try to like be them in your head. And I know there are writers who try to do that. They try to be that character in their head when they're writing. I'd rather not even go anywhere near the method writing. <laughs> Whatever that would be called. Because it's like method acting, right? You're getting too deep. Yeah. It's just not a good idea. <clears throat> I've known some writers who've tried that kind of approach. Uh, it was... Um, and they, they wrote about some of the struggles they had with it. That it was difficult what it did to their mindset doing that. And I... So it... I, I, I treat that as a cautionary tale. As be careful about guarding your mental boundaries. Um but I, I would say, you know, it's be true to the character, for sure, be true to the character and how you envision them. But being true to the character doesn't necessarily mean rehashing their trauma on screen. Um, I see people do this with Tony Dinozo a lot. It's like every story that they tell about him has every horrible life experience he's had um, reiterated and rehashed. It's like, why? It's almost like trauma porn. That's um, exactly what it is, though, right? I mean, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is kind of trauma porn, and it's it, people do it with Buck a little bit too. Except that nine one one stories are so short that they tr they rehash it really quick and it's over with. Nine one one. I mean, uh, NCIS authors, authors tend to belabor that for forty or fifty thousand words. Um, <laughs> and there's a difference. I'm sorry, in my ability to deal, <laughs> but um, I think you would be careful that you're not getting into trauma porn and just rehashing a character's negative experiences that happened in canon just because they happened so you can acknowledge and be true to the trauma they had which the trauma they had will be in how they react to circumstances without having to rehash the trauma on screen and, and i don't know that this is what you're struggling with or this is where you're going um i'm just saying it's something to be aware of that being true to a character's traumatic circumstances does not mean rehashing their trauma it might mean acknowledging that they're in therapy, or it might mean that they're cautious. It might mean they're intimacy avoidant. It might mean a lot of things, but it doesn't mean you have to rehash their th every bit of horrible thing they've been through on screen um, and have a bloodletting session about every bad thing they've been through. Um, it's, it's not realistic either. I mean, think, think about your own trauma and how you deal with... Um, how you deal with things, how you process things, how you process grief, how you process bad experiences. Um, and a lot of times, now speaking from experience, extremely traumatic experiences, there are two ways they go in your brain. They either remain so vivid like they happened yesterday, or they become this hazy thing that happened to you 
that you don't quite remember. It depends on the emotional content of the trauma, too. I think that physical trauma tends to go hazy, whereas like emotional trauma tends to linger and be very vivid, at least for me and my personal experience. Um, like a car accident that was really traumatic for me because the car rolled over, I thought I was going to die. Um, my emotional content for that accident is really clear in my brain, but the physical part is hazy. I remember hitting something on the road. Like there was just like this something in my tire blue, my front tire blue. Um, and the car turned. And then the next thing I know I was hitting an embankment and I was rolling over rapidly end to end. And the next thing I know I smell gas and there's glass all over me. And I'm thinking to myself, I have to get the fuck out of this car before it explodes. I really didn't need to worry about that because the engine of that vehicle was sitting on the road beside my car. That's how bad that was. The engine was literally on the road. The entire engine block had been knocked out of the vehicle. Well, I've never seen anything like that. That's, that's an important safety feature because some vehicles, um, the engine is designed to drop out rather than crush into the passenger compartment. Oh, well, okay. It did its job. It was a Ford Taurus. Um, saved my life. It had uh, the only part of the car that was not crap, completely compacted in was the driver's side because it had a roll cage. And I don't remember much else about the accident. And all I had was a severely sprained wrist and a one inch cut on my arm. And I got the cut on my arm getting out of the vehicle because I freaked out. And what I remember most is freaking out. So if you think about that, your own personal traumas and having your character like have these vivid memories of every single traumatic thing that ever happened to them is not only awful torture porn, it's unrealistic. Yeah. One of the things I talk about, if we've talked about some other cast, one of the things is it becomes a characterization issue. And we see it a lot in with Denozo, sometimes with Stark, but not as often. Um, who else? Usually it's the designated criers. <laughs> Some characters more than others, which is I call it the over, I call it the overshare. Um, it can make me deeply uncomfortable to read it, but we've all experienced the overshare, and in the, in the particularly when it comes to trauma with Denozo, it's a trauma overshare, where it's like he'll meet somebody and in a in a fic, and within like an hour of meeting them, he's disclosed every bad thing that's ever happened to him, and I'm just sitting there with my eyes wide, going, "Oh my God, they're never going to want to be around him again." Um, and I'm kind of horrified because he's not, um, he's not, he's not the, um, it doesn't even make sense, really. He's not, the, it doesn't make sense with his characterization, um, at all. Um, and, um, it's, it's uncomfortable for the reader. And honestly, if you've never been in a situation like that, where I, I, most people have, where somebody just suddenly unloads on you in a way that's completely inappropriate, it is deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Um, yeah, in therapy, it'd be fine. I wouldn't think anything about it if it was therapy, but it, it starts to feel like a form of trauma porn when I'm reading that. Like, why is he sharing every bad thing? It's like, it's like the author wants this character to know that this other character on the screen to know about all the bad things that happened to know and really become protective and, and supportive of him because of the bad things he's been through, which is just weird. Um, it's like... <sighs> It's almost, almost, almost like a reverse Mary Sue trope. It's because 
they want Tony to find somebody who will save him from all his problems and make everything perfect and right and rainbows and sunshine. Right. Right, you're right, Bri. If I if encountered some perfect stranger who unloaded every personal trauma from me, I'd be calling 911. Like, yeah, um, I'm over here at Target, and this lady stopped me in the parking lot to tell me about all of her trauma. I think she's having a nervous breakdown. Can you send an ambulance? We had a 5150 in action over here. <laughs> um, is that what it's called? Okay, good to know. Well, 5150 is somebody who's a threat to themselves or others. Okay, is that true across jurisdictions or... I believe so. In, in the United States, it's it's a it's a mental health code that basically this person is not 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 safe for themselves or, or to be around others. And therapists use it to to have a um, patients taken by ambulance um, to to get evaluated first. Usually, the, and usually, if a therapist is sending you for one of those, you're about to get a seventy two hour psych hold. And you also, depending on your size, might end up in handcuffs for your own safety. Just yeah, well, often <laughs> actually, often you will wind up handcuffed because if they consider you, if the, if you're a danger to yourself or others, and the therapist and the, the they don't know if they can contain you, you especially if cops are first on the scene, you will get handcuffed before anything else happens because they can they cannot allow you to harm yourself, they cannot allow you to harm others. So just be prepared for it. We're not telling you you're gonna have a nervous breakdown. Just letting you know that if that happens, you might end up in cuffs. I um. The th- patient ahead of me at my therapist's office one time, uh, she came out, she says, it's going to be a few minutes. And I was like, okay. And the next thing I know, he came out with the para- police and paramedics, but he was handcuffed. They Because it was narrow stairs, they couldn't have carried him down anyway. But the police had handcuffed him to escort him out. So the next time your therapist comes out and tells you it's going to be a few minutes, maybe you go wait your car. <laughs> I was like, boo. Okay. And like the minute... The, the minute he, he had cleared the office, they got, she goes, get in here. And she goes, and she goes, I'll be right back. And she escorted him out to the ambulance. She goes, it'll be a few minutes. And she went and talked him out, talked him all the way to the ambulance. And, but yeah, they had him handcuffed. And that was, that was, she, he had, he had a complete meltdown in her office and she called, called in 5150. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's what that looks like. I don't ever want to be in this situation. <laughs> right. Um, but in terms of what the person asked is, um, it is, I think it's most important to take care of yourself, your emotional health, beyond anything. Um, it is fine if your writing brings you to tears. Sometimes it happens to me. Um, it can be cathartic. It can. Sometimes I get teary over stupid shit. Honestly, things that are not sad in my story, when that little line about um, shenanigans being like bubbles in, in Christopher's mouth, that actually made me teary. It was very sweet it was sweet it was it was i don't know why but it just got me like i wrote it and i was like oh and i got like my eyes were all misty i was like what's the matter with me (laughs) if i wasn't utterly charmed by him already that would have done it honestly um it's very charming but also accurate that's exactly what shenanigans feels like and kerfuffle yes (laughs) kerfuffle is also like bubbles um so sometimes I do, and sometimes it's the sad stuff that also gets me a little teary. But if my brain <coughs> is bringing me to like a point of sobbing, I need a break. I have the line has blurred. Um, I've gotten too deep in the headset. I'm not in the right. There's something not right there. Um, so there's a lot to unpack in this question, I think. Um, and without knowing more details, I don't know what else I could offer. What about you? I feel like that. Um, a lot of times we gravitate towards stories that are emotional wreckers. 
when we're in a bad emotional spot. Um, I have a couple of fics that I only work on when I'm really upset. I don't know that I'm ever going to want to read one of those stories. It's going to be like, well, they're not, (laughs) they're not publishable. That's the point. Uh, Um, They're not something that I would ever share because they're, they're a hot mess. We talked about that earlier, hot messes, but this is a hot mess on purpose. This is me exercising my demons, so to speak, because sometimes you need an outlet and it's not always best to, it's sometimes better to confine that to a spot. No one will ever see like a personal journal or um, a story you don't intend to ever share. Really fucked up fic. That one really fucked up fic that we all have. (laughs) You salt the earth. (laughs) Because, you know, that's, that's the truth. You know, writing is a very solitary um, situation. And often writers especially writers who are good at like uh, ripple management and who can see the ramifications of their choices, even in real life can can sometimes spiral. Like what if I did this instead of that, that day, what would have happened? And then you just spiral into this thing. And the next thing you know, you're attending your own funeral in your head. It happens. (laughs) You know, it's like, how did I get here? And you're like, I need a nap and a cookie. (coughs) Not necessarily in that order. Um, Right. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm out of water. Um, definitely, you gotta take care of your own mental headspace first. Um, then make sure you keep the boundaries between you and your character as clear and as as distinct as you can, because you are not your character. No matter how much you might identify with them, you are not your character. It's important to always remember that that because if you start over over identifying and over over inserting the character into you and you into them, you can get into one of those horrible spirals where it just ramps everything up. And and then the next thing is be true to the character, but make sure what you're showing in the story serves the story and not just some sort of emotional trauma porn. One short term solution is if it's just like you're having a moment, try changing your POV. Yeah. Um, and definitely don't write in first person ever. Um, some people just aren't built for it. It's good for you to acknowledge and, and, know, and know that about yourself. Know that if you move into a first person point of view that you're going to have problems. Whether you want to work on that or avoid it. Knowing it is like literally the most important part. Um, but changing your POV can kind of lighten your perspective as a writer and make it easier so if you have a scene that's really difficult to write from one character's point of view, start over and write it from a different character's point of view. It will maybe, hopefully it would allow you to be more objective. Yeah. That's your goal. Objectivity. Because it's hard not to be emotional about a creative process, but ultimately you also have to be able to have some emotional distance from it, which is why compartmentalizing is so important. So I think we got that one. We did get one more one that I think has got, for me, it's got a very short answer. Um, okay is which is that i realize i'm writing scenes that i don't need to add to my story but those scenes are building my character further in my head but it's a lot of scenes is that a bad habit should i working to drop that or is it okay to write those scenes help me move further um i think my answer is you should write as many scenes as this helps you know your character and move on but if you can make the distinction i don't think it's a bad habit to write them it might be a bad habit to include them right so 
I often write I often write scenes that people never see. It's not uncommon, especially in something that's longer than say twenty five or thirty k. It's not uncommon that there's a scene or two. The longer the story that gets, the more scenes there are that nobody else is ever going to see. I mean, I have three chapters of Small Magic that nobody's ever seen. So it's not just a matter they got cut. Sometimes they do get cut, like that wasn't useful, and sometimes they are written with the intention of no one ever seeing them. It's like this is for my benefit, so I can because like something happened off screen, it doesn't really move the story forward, but I need to know how that went, so that I have it right. really clear in my head. So I'll write it so that it's really solid for me, and then I just put it aside with. I have a cut file for every single story I've written that's over 10k, and my cut file is robust. Um, so. It's not a bad habit. Absolutely, it's not. A, it's my part. It's a good habit because the more you understand your characters, the better. So as long as you don't, as long as you're understanding what's important to include and what's not, that's the hard part. Because most people, honestly, if they write it, they want to share it. But and you know, I understand. I get that's it. That's the hurdle. I do. I get it too. My, my words are awesome. I want everybody to read them. Um, but what the I also is say actually, is that be careful that you don't cut things that you need for your characterization, because yeah. Every scene should serve one purpose, at least one. Either it's moving your plot or it's furthering your characterization. It ideally it does both, but it has to do one or the other. So, so if you pull a scene that really speaks to your characterization, your reader will never know you did it, but it might alter your characterization in your story. At least their perception of your character. Yeah, that can be that can be a hurdle, especially if um a lot of your characterization basings are in your cut file. So yeah, that's definitely to be careful. But the bigger hurdle most writers struggle with is knowing is, is cutting stuff out. It's like if they wrote it, they want to include it um, to the point that most that you'll see a lot of people have a, uh, they'll have a novel length work. Not, not most, you see a few, a fair number of writers who post on AO3 of like a novel length work. And then they'll have scenes that were cut because they didn't further the story and they'll, put them up as a separate story like here are a bunch of disconnected scenes that didn't make it into the final cut it's like they're doing missing scenes on dvd yeah now, sometimes I, I, those are actually really fucking entertaining though so it's true i would not say that that's not that's a terrible habit it can be amusing but be careful what you share there too because sometimes you could actually end up contradicting the content of your actual story which i've seen happen too so if you're if you already know these scenes don't belong you're doing them to help you grow as a writer to help you further your understanding of the character you've already gone over the bigger hurdle that most people face which is being able to cut out something they've written because that's a tough thing for a lot of writers I, I struggle with it sometimes like oh my god i wrote this and i really like this particular turn of phrase here but it just isn't help it isn't helping the story it isn't working i gotta take it out that's the harder battle for most writers so you, you're already you're already doing good Congratulations. No, it's not. Yeah, congrats. And it's not a bad habit at all to to write more to understand your character. I mean, often there are, I mean, I have, we know how much I have in progress, um, but over a million words. Um, but then I also have a file, maybe close to 200K from my fan fiction of words that nobody will ever see because it was either cut scenes or... Uh, scenes I wrote to further my understanding of a character, uh, background scenes for just, I wanted to see how that would have gone down. Like in fact, one of the background scenes that I ended up publishing as an interlude um, was the scene between Gerard and Rodney when Gerard told Rodney that he was going to be his courtesan. Um, I wrote that for myself. 
I eventually shared it because I mentioned it to somebody and they were really interested in reading it. But I wrote it eventually originally for myself so that I could see that moment between them because it was a very intimate moment that I wanted to see for myself how that would have played out. I could see why you would. It's a really pivotal for Rodney. Um, and Rodney's that acceptance for you. Yeah. That submission. Um, so yeah, but there are there are scenes like that that you that you write and put together that you don't do that you don't include in your actual novel that can sometimes be very entertaining and sometimes should never, ever, ever, ever be shared. Some things you write really just to further your own understanding. And, and honestly, sometimes they're in such a rough form. Sometimes, I mean, some of those scenes I do just under further my understanding about like maybe sometimes I have a conversation with, it's literally just the dialogue. I mean, it's literally not fit for fit for consumption because it's right? never intended. It's never intended to be shared. Um, be careful when you're asking other people to read your work for alpha reading to see if something needs to be included or not. And it boils down to this. Readers are greedy as fuck. They don't want to part with a single word. Right. Which means it has to be somebody you know is looking at your story from a craft perspective, not a... Reader, give me know. more, give me more, give me more. Like, I've had people celebrate on rough trade when i went over my projected word count like they have uh, obviously they have no clue how infuriating that is for me when it happens um and how upsetting it can be if it's like a lot that i and because i work hard to meet my goal and to have um but when i go over it's like oh god where did i go wrong and then they're over there fucking celebrating i know they don't mean it to be rude but it is just celebrate quietly. Don't, don't 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 be gleeful about the fact that I'm I failed. You know I've gone fifty k over my goal. Um, <laughs> it's just easier not to tell them my real goal. That way, I don't have to confess that I've gone over it, or my real estimate for my word count. Have a goal, but not share my estimate. Yeah, exactly. Hi, Chris. Hey, Chris. We were discussing you earlier. The blowjob queen. <laughs> That <laughs> take it out of context. That's fantastic. <clears throat> well, we we remember Chris for many things, but we certainly do remember her when porn comes up for sure. Um, yeah, with with an Alfred, you you definitely want to know um, that it's somebody who is going to look at your work for it being a good final product, not being a good bigger product. <laughs> Not being a right? final bigger product. There's because a difference. for some readers, they'll be like, oh, this story is great. It's 500K. What's great about it'd it? Be, it's 500K. <laughs> right. It'd be, yeah, I've had people wreck stories. This, wreck, wreck a story to be based on length. Right. Length. Somebody actually recommended something. They sent me this email. It's an email wreck. It was like, and it really was like, it was, and it, the wreck was based on length. And it was like there. It's like 500k. And it's in and and it's a fandom you like. And I was like, and I was like, and what is? To, and I looked at the pairings, and I was like, and what is to recommend this story to me besides length? And I was like, I was mildly curious. I got like, um, under the first first page, the first chapter, and there's a 500 word paragraph. <laughs> I was like, no, no, hard pass. That's like almost three times the length a paragraph should be. To be perfectly honest. My average paragraph, my average paragraph length is less than 100 words. So Mine too, probably. But I think that I would draw the line at 200. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, I honestly, even but I think two hundred is extreme. Yeah, two hundred needs to be the outside. It needs to be the outside. It needs to be something that's uncommon, and it and there's means a really good reason why that can't be broken up. Because like when I even when I beta an alpha read for somebody, sometimes it's like if they've got a paragraph that's long and there's a way to break it up, I'm like, you can break right, this click. up. Click, right <laughs> enter. <there. laughs> I'm hitting the enter button. <laughs> Insert it's paragraph. This, <laughs> it's a paragraph break. Um, because there, it's just harder to read. It's just it's just hard to read. So anyway. I was like, no. And it wasn't, I when I, I just scrolled and it wasn't uncommon. These just epic length paragraphs. They probably had some that were upwards of a thousand words. That is like, ridiculous. I can't read that. Paragraph breaks are your best friend, lady, gentleman. But then, I started, also, but then I started getting a vibe also of the content. I was like, I can't believe it. We think I, I would want to read. I would want to read. Anybody who's read my writing would think I would want to read this. I was so offended. It was like, it was like, but it was like, I don't know. It was like this snobby offended. <laughs> I'm probably in my head I'm so arrogant right now I can't believe anybody who's read my work thinks I want to read this <laughs> she clearly wasn't generally competent <laughs> no they weren't generally competent <sighs> don't judge me Chris King don't judge me I accept no judgment about my knickers of judgment I was keeping them to myself <laughs> while they strangled her wholesale <laughs> That's right. It was an everlast. <laughs> oh, half the chat room didn't even get that joke. No, they didn't. It's awful. We did get the knickers of judgment out, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm your mother or Princess Margaret in this scenario. <laughs> Probably a mixture of both. But I have so, gotten wrecks where I'll be like, what, what have I said or done in public that made you think I would want to read this? <laughs> right? That's, that's exactly my tone of voice. I need head. to retract like, whatever I did immediately. But, and the funny thing was, is that the, the recommendations seem to be based completely on fandom and length. There was like nothing else that was in line with anything I've written based upon the tags. Nothing in line in terms of the pairing. <laughs> it was bordering on a harem. So oh, I'm God. pretty, pretty anti-harem. <laughs> um, I cannot read harem fix to save my life. I was like, um, please don't wreck me any. Oh, no, please don't. I don't. So I, I find harems objectively awful. So I mean, no. if, the pro if, if I'm fine with a, just a, if, if you've got like 10 people and a free love kind of situation, everybody's banging everybody else. You do you. That is fine. But one person with like eight spouses Hell no. I want to deal with those kind of shenanigans, I'd move to Utah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I find those, those fix particularly to be objectifying, um, degrading, um, often very crackish. And I don't actually read a lot of crack in fandom. It isn't my, I, I don't seek it out. It isn't something that I really enjoy um, reading. Um, and, and often in Harry Potter, the objectification is like wretched. It, it's he's married to every woman who basically exists in canon, including Bellatrix Lestrange. It's like right. I don't get it. How does this work? I actually the thing is, I am okay with some crack. I have written crack, and there is nothing about um, that Deadpool sending Tony Donozo a box full of fingers that can be characterized as anything. Put crack in any fashion. So 
I clearly am not completely against crack, but um, these harem fics are not written as crack. They're not. It, to me, it's a cracky premise, but they're not written as crack. Yeah, I've seen Harry married to Bellatrix, Andromeda, and Narcissa. At the same time. In the same fic. <laughs> it's just, I think, I don't, I haven't read these stories. It's just like, just in the summary, it's like he's getting all the wives for some reason. It's like. We're not we, reading them. Reading we're just them. seeing them. I wouldn't read that shit on a bet. But the thing is, every time I say it's one of us says we don't like these stories, we get wrecked one, you know, or two or 12 or a hundred, whatever. Um, I honestly really great, could not really be great, paid to read a harem fic. There's this really great harem fic that will change your mind. It's like, no, it won't. I'll be like, okay, if you PayPal me $500,000, I will read that fic. After I deposit the money in my bank account, I will go read that fic. Well, I have to deposit the money and wait at least a month to make sure I'm not going to get any kind of legal trouble. Right? No refunds. And then then I will read, read the fic and give you a thoughtful commentary. <laughs> you can even include one where, where the giant squid's part of the harem. I'm sure that exists. <laughs> I'm sure it does too. There's actually a crack fic where Harry got turned into a giant squid and he got put in the lake and he had babies with the giant squid. And then after he got turned back into a human, he would go feed um, the babies off the dock as child support. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read it. I swear to God, I didn't read it. As told me all about it though. As I said, it does seem like as a speed. It just that's right yeah. up for crack alley. <laughs> Azure, if, if there's a crack story, Harry Potter, Azure has probably read it. Yeah. She lives to find Harry Potter. That's crack. her jelly donut. That's right. <laughs> I mean, if somebody said there's this harem fic that's not really a harem and the fact that nobody's having sex, Harry just marries everybody to protect them from political shenanigans, I'd be like, as long as he marries men too. You know, because we need to be <coughs> equal opportunity protector of political shenanigans. Yeah, that's right. But I don't want to read it because I really don't care to read about political shenanigans in the middle of a harem fic. But as long as nobody's banging, you know, it's the fact that he's having sex with all these people. I mean, honestly, and honestly, how is he getting it up that much? Although I guess magic. Magic, magic but he's got to be dry. Tired. Coming tired at some point. And tired. Look, testicles only make so much semen, Okay. The prostate gets tired. Also, even if he's not actually performing all the time, if he's oral or digital or whatever, he's still going to get tired. This man will have no time to do anything but fuck. And it's just not good. Is he eating? Is he showering? <laughs> Is he sleeping? Is he, is he performing his magical duty? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe his duty to magic? Is his duty just to fuck? <sighs> Just saying. I don't know how we got here. <coughs> it's a very performing magical dick duty. Okay. I do not know how we got here. But we do have one more question, but it is a big question. So it is a whole other podcast. It's actually, a, yeah, it's like totally a whole podcast. So we'll save that one. Um, I deleted the rest. Okay. <coughs> and with that, I think we're done. Are we done? Yes, yeah, Susan, put that question in the... Um, in the ask a question thing and uh we'll add it to our list because you're right that's a that, that that's a whole podcast um but uh, i think we're done i hope you guys learned something and that you were entertained and um if you enjoy harem fic um you go do you but please don't send me any links i mean right. that none we don't want any links ever 
about harems. But if you have some really awesome pictures of Winston, I would we'll not be opposed it. to getting them in my email. <laughs> On that note, as we celebrate M'Baku becoming the Black Panther. <laughs> With some exploded ovaries. Vaginas have clenched all over the planet, etc. Clench what you got, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> M'Baku's in the house. So say goodnight, Jilly. Good night, everyone. <laughs>